people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Compared to you, most people have the IQ of a carrot. We're different than most people, Mitch. Better. I've decided to put you on my own research team with some of the finest minds on the campus. You're going to be working with Chris. He's a senior now, and he's as brilliant as he ever was. This is ice. This is what happens to water when it gets too cold. This, this is Ken. This is what happens to people when they get too sexually frustrated. I'm Chris Knight. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Look, it's about our deal. To graduate, you need my course, dear boy. I have advanced your project more than any three students on campus. What exactly do you want? I want five megawatts by mid-May. So from now on, you and Mitch are going to spend every waking moment in the lab. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Chris Bricklemeyer. Hello. Thank you for having me back again. Also joining us in the booth is Mr. Ryan Luis Rodriguez. Hello. So happy to be here. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are discussing the 1985 film from Martha Coolidge, Real Genius. Written by Pat Proft and Neil Israel, the film stars Gabe Jarrett as Mitch Taylor, a 15-year-old who is recruited into a top engineering college by Professor Jerry Hathaway, played by a man who loved to play heels in the 1980s, William Atherton. Is this true? Yes, it's true. This man has no dick. Hathaway has been secretly contracted by the U.S. military to create a new weapon, a Jewish space laser, of course, which can vaporize a target from the upper atmosphere. Mitch is paired with the hottest of hotshots at the school, Chris Knight, who is played by Val Kilmer in a real career Kickstarter role. And yes, I'm aware that he played Nick Rivers before this as well. We will be spoiling the film as we discuss it, so if you haven't seen Real Genius, Please turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So, Chris, as the old man here, I want to uh, defer to your decrepit age and ask you, when was the first time that you saw Real Genius and what did you think? Well, back at the Nickelodeon, it was it was on HBO, I believe. Probably, you know, with that year window they had probably probably. So I would probably say the summer 86, the year after it came out. I instantly loved it. Not only did he have a name, the more important character in the movie. I'm kidding. Um, Val Kilmer had a name that you don't hear a lot in movies. You don't hear Chris in movies a whole lot. And uh, that was nice to see. And then he was sarcastic, like, uh, you know, like Venkman uh, the year before. So that it made a, quite a huge impression on me. I would I, I think my, a lot of my a lot of my humor came from uh, two years worth of movies. <laughs> And Ryan, how about yourself? I wasn't born when this movie came out. Sorry to make everybody feel old all of a sudden. That wasn't my intention when I started talking, but that's exactly what's going to happen. 
So growing up, uh, I was aware of this uh, kind of, like Chris said, being on HBO all the time because I would read TV Guide religiously and you would see like every week there was at least one slot in which Real Genius was playing. But my family never had HBO, so I could never watch it. And it wasn't until maybe three or four years ago that one of my best friends, Brittany, finally sat me down. She's like, you haven't seen Real Genius? I'm like, no, I mean... It looks okay. It looks fine. Whatever. She's like, no, no, seriously, we're going to sit down. We're going to watch it. And I was absolutely transfixed. I thought it was uh, absolutely lovely. It's an 80s comedy, but it's not an 80s comedy. Like it's smarter than the than the typical uh, genre fare. But yeah, I love this movie. Yeah, it's kind of a weird way to start the film by using these drawings of the weapons and having that old timey music that you took advantage of me song, which is very nice and very prophetic rather than like a poppy eighties, you know, day glow type of thing. I always forget just how this movie starts and that it takes a little while before you actually get to meet Mitch and that, well, it takes even longer before you get to meet Chris, but this whole idea of showing the Project Crossbow and, yeah, sorry, kidding around about Jewish space lasers. But, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that I think uh, – oh, it wasn't Marjorie Taylor Greene. It was a Brobert. Like, that was her thing, right, was the space laser. I, there, it's like this whole weird rash of dumb female senators <laughs> as opposed to the dumb male senators. But, yeah, just like, oh, okay. But, yeah, that they've got that. And that it's Stacey Peralta is the, uh, the guy in this commercial for the space laser. And this was around the time of Star Wars, the uh, Reagan plan. So this kind of just fit right into that. And this might actually be a precursor to that. U.S. defense policy over the last two decades has been based on what some call the balance of terror. Deterrence between the United States and the Soviet Union has been achieved by a perception that both sides have sufficient nuclear capability to inflict unacceptable damage on the other. So you've got the old-timey music with the credits. You've got this weird, you think that it's real, but then it turns out that it's commercial for Project Crossbow. You've got these six guys in this kind of star chamber talking about stuff. And then one of them gets out of line. So they're like, oh, isn't it a shame we're going to have to liquidate this guy? <laughs> All right. And yeah, then they're pretty open about, uh, you know, this being the perfect peacetime weapon in that it's both immoral and unethical. And then we finally get to the high school science projects and we get to see Mitch. And I did find it interesting that I, I was reading the script last night. The first thing that you see is the effects of alcohol on mice experiment, but in the script, it's the effects of marijuana on mice experiment and that the other mouse is laying in a hammock. There's a lot more of these experiments before you get to Mitch. Uh, but this one, it, it really cuts out the fat, gets right there to Mitch, and we get introduced to William Atherton playing this Jerry Hathaway character. And, I mean, Atherton is just the guy you love to hate. I mean, you mentioned, Chris, you mentioned uh, Ghostbusters. So between this, Ghostbusters, and Die Hard, I mean, that's like the triumvirate of William Atherton. Then you see him in something where he's playing a nice guy, and you're like, you're expecting him to stab you in the back at any minute. He really cornered the market on that. The thing about Atherton in this one is he 
takes it one step further than his Ghostbusters role, where he was a, he was a jerk to our our main characters, but from a legal standpoint, from a protecting people, he had he had a, a, a he had the law <laughs> to back his questions up. But here they go the extra step to first make you see that he hates dogs, just hates dogs, and then in a bold move. <laughs> They had uh, the, the the bad guy in a movie that would only play in the theater first. Tell everybody he hates popcorn. If you didn't get him with dogs, you got him with popcorn. There you go. And we know that you gave the Ghostbusters a hard time, too, on top of that. And you're going to give Bruce Willis a hard time. So you might as well just, there you go, just play villains. And with the popcorn, it's Chekhov's popcorn. That's the one over the top stunt that like is just like a step too far. Like they had the floating chair in the trailer, but they cut that for the movie and on the poster. Yeah, but that's just that's a little too absurd to make the movie right. But the but for a grand finale, uh, yeah, okay, uh, two cubic tons of popcorn. There we go. I'm in for that. You got to top it. He is working secretly with the military and not giving any of the money that he's making from this project to the school that it's very pointedly uh, shown that he's redoing his entire house, which makes the popcorn gag at the end even sweeter that his house is destroyed. He doesn't get to like yell and scream like when he gets covered with marshmallow in um, Ghostbusters, which always confused me. I was just like, what? Why is he screaming like that? But I, I always like mix up the two things, thinking that he's the one in the popcorn and he's yelling and screaming about it. See, I figured for Ghostbusters, right? He's having liquefied marshmallow poured over him. He's screaming in pain, right? His oh, that's like napalm. Yeah, yeah. Candyland napalm. Oh, wow. That's what I figured. <laughs> and it's also falling from the top of that yeah. building. Yeah. So yeah. terminal velocity and boiling temperatures. That's getting in places he's never going to get it out of. So that's why the popcorn in the house wasn't so bad. This day. He remembered. Uh, and he's so fucking smarmy. There's that uh, old lady. Uh, tell me, uh, what is Mr. Einstein really like? Dead. <laughs> insulting the parents you know just like asking if if mitch is uh adopted just because he is so dismissive of them oh boy and just that whole like you know hey we are smarter than everyone else mitch we are on a different level basically fuck all these ignorant pigs that are running around he gets off on insulting people to their face and them saying thank you a lot of those zingers are right in the script, and then occasionally there are some that were punched up at a later date. So, like, that whole thing when we finally meet Chris Knight, Val Kilmer, and they say, you're Chris Knight? And he's like, oh, I hope so. I'm wearing his underwear. That was not in the script. Those little zingers, man. And Kilmer just delivers them. You know, I pointed out that he was Nick Rivers before this. And, of course, Ryan, I know, like, you're a big Zucker Abram Zucker fan. I mean, that to me is like, I think it's like airplane at the top and then top secret right under it because the rest of them are good. But I think top secret is great. I think airplane is just because it's so it's the prototype for what everything that follows. So I think that has to be definitely at the top. But top secret is 
so underrated in kind of how elegant it is in the way that it does not fit any mold. It literally, it looks at uh, all the different kinds of movies that would follow and all the different kinds of movies that came before, and it just breaks right through. And it's it's one of those movies that I think I'll I'll have to be vocally defending until my last dying breath, but I'm I'm happy to do so because he and he's astonishing in that movie. It's one of the best debut performances, best debut comedic performances, I think, uh, out there. And to have these two years in a row is a hell of a one-two punch. And then he follows this up with Top Gun, right? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, complete turn for him as a as a character too. Just really shows his range. I mean, I, Val Kilmer, he's an interesting cat, but man, when he is on, he is fucking on. And I just, of course, you know, I've already talked about him in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang on this show, you know, a few years ago. That to me is one of his great performances, but he just, when he's, he brings it, he is just there. Like he was in, um, the David Mamet film Spartan, which I think is one of those that doesn't get enough love. I thought he just killed that performance. He was wonderful. Yeah, every once in a while you get a red planet, but you know <laughs> when yeah, when he when he switches it on, it's pretty damn infectious whenever he shows up to play. When Chris is introduced and he's touring this other I guess it's not a school, he's actually trying to get a job at this place. He's introduced to this character Sherry, who has met eight of the ten most brilliant minds in America. I was so confused by her because she's going to come back twice more in the movie. And when she shows up, I don't know if it's just that I'm an idiot or what's going on, but she's not as memorable as I think she's supposed to be. And I think what would have solidified her. So I was going through and rereading the script last night after we're introduced to her there is basically a whole sex scene of her and Chris doing it. I want to say like uh, maybe a near telescope or something. And she is just like, tell me smart things. And he starts to describe this laser and she pretty much starts coming because of all of the scientific jargon that he's laying on her. I think that would have cemented her in my head a little bit better. Deborah Foreman is actually more memorable in this movie. And she only has like two lines. But the second she shows up, you're like, oh, Valley Girl. Okay. All right. And then with her, we were talking about how Atherton is such a, a horrible person in this. I thought that she was the one that he was sleeping with later on. But I guess that's just a co-ed. That's not Valley Girl. That oh, that's he her. That's her? That's her. Okay. So he's sleeping with the daughter of Ed Brubaker? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All yeah, right. Because the joke is, have you ever seen a body like that in your life? And it's, yeah, that's my daughter. Oh, I guess well, you I have. Guess you have. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, that joke doesn't work well in real life. No, I've tr- I've tried some of this stuff because I don't give a shit. So I just thought some of this would be funny to try, and a couple of them don't land. What? When you were fifteen, after you first saw this, Chris Knight is fucking cool. And you want to be Chris Knight. And there's no time where you're like, even when he's at his, his worst, he's better than me when I'm at my best. Yeah. He's so optimistic. Even when he's just completely pessimistic, it's, it's a weird contradiction he carries. 
I, I would kill to be as unflappable as he is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Walking and there's something about like the the 80s white male protagonist that Bill Murray kind of like established it. But then, you know, people like Michael Keaton would push it a little bit further. And sometimes they can get insufferable. And, you know, walking into a situation and having an answer for everything and being a smart ass. And it's it's an aspirational thing, but also it can get grating. He never tips into that. He always stays like you You think that he's not he's not being needlessly cruel. He's not being an asshole for the sake of being an asshole. He just happens to be smarter than everyone else in the room. I think you're talking about the Ferris Bueller effect. Yes. Yes, absolutely. That's actually in my notes right here. <laughs> <laughs> for good reason, too. Yeah. He's like you said, he's not flappable. He's the unflappable Chris Knight, but like he can take a pratfall, like when they're, they have all the ice in the hallway and I think he's about to do something. And then I think what we're supposed to get is that all of the ice turns to gas at one moment as he's, and he kind of falls on his ass a little bit and he can fall on his ass. I think that's what about this character I like is that, you know, he, he gets tripped up, and I like the way that he gets tripped up, and he actually gets tripped up better in the film than he did in the script. Sorry to keep going back to the script, but when he takes that test later on, and I know I'm jumping way forward, when he takes that test and have to, has to prove that he's a good student, even though he kind of cheats by having <laughs> all of the questions, <laughs> thanks to Laszlo, but when he does that, and then he gets defeated by Kent, and we'll talk about Kent in a minute, but when, when he gets defeated by Kent, by Kent putting the grease on the laser, in the script, that grease isn't there. What it actually is, is that Kent then gets to grade the papers, and he basically redoes the test and puts wrong answers on there. So he fails the test. That So when he says, I passed, but I failed, but I past or whatever he doesn't fail the test and so it's more it's the the failure of the test in the script and i'm like no 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 the way that they handled it in the movie by him doing okay on the test but then fucking up with the laser is the perfect way to do this oh absolutely yeah very very smart move and that's the thing you know you mentioned it's a smart movie and they handle all that stuff very well when you make a movie about smart people you better be smart yourself because otherwise it's going to it's going to become evident really early on that you're not playing at the right weight level. Well yeah, it doesn't do a lot of that like oh it's the 256 baud modem with the virtual reality chip kind of stuff. It's like they talk about stuff scientifically but and I'm no scientist but it all seems to make sense. Yeah, that was Martha Coolidge's big thing, was making sure that that part was at least accurate. That even though there isn't a laser with that kind of capability, if they did make one, that's what it would be like to ground the universe. Using liquid nitrogen and the argon, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that all was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I might not know this, but the way you're explaining it to me, I buy it. And it doesn't seem like it's science fiction. Whether it's it's jargon or babble it sounds as realistic as when the ghostbusters are describing their gear it's like that makes sense in that world you've created a real world with real lasers all those things are real words i know those words i don't know what they mean when you put them in that order specifically but <laughs> that makes sense 
Well, it's smart, too, that there is that scene with the ice in the hallway and how the ice ends up turning into gas. And I really like that it's an actual, oh, my God, an Asian character in a movie from the 80s who isn't speaking with a weird accent or isn't completely uh, stereotyped. What's happening, hot stuff? That Ick is a real character, and he is effective, and he's not, like, you know, me so horny or... Not carrying around a camera. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and Ick was actually short for his Japanese name, which I needed to know, so I had to look that up, because you don't just call a human being Ick without good reason, and that should be... So it was his name, that's fine. I think that was the best part of the movie was his realization, his breakthrough moment, was it felt so real. Like, that's what's going to happen. You're going to sit there and you're going to be like, I can't cool this. Oh, huh and and that's exactly how it should be i use liquid nitrogen to make slugs to pay for things in the vending machine good for the and then they took it one step further and they're like okay this is gonna be destroyed when we use it but you'll see i'm like all right good that gives them one and then especially watching it now it felt like watching them build a believable prototype that 10 years down the line can be handheld or something but at this point it's it's a room full of <laughs> vacuum tubes. Yeah, a lot more, a lot more effort put into this than um, other stuff at the time, and it and it really shows. Yeah, all you got to do is take this and Revenge of the Nerds and just put them side by side, and one is succeeding where the other is failing. Let's talk about the character of Kent. As you're talking about Revenge of the Nerds, I'm just like, okay, Kent is a fellow nerd, and. He's a fellow very smart person, and he is a very smart person. So it's not like they're going up against idiots, and it's not like this is the snobs versus the slobs type of thing. Yeah, Chris is messy, and he lives in a messy room and all this stuff, and it's not like he's stupid. He is toe-to-toe. I mean, he's one of the smartest minds on campus. He just doesn't have his shit together sometimes. And he knows, oh, I'm on this project. I can. I mean, really, kind of, he's, you know, like skating by a little bit. No ice pun intended. But it's like, yeah, all right. And then he has to really prove his mettle at one point because now Kent is going to be the golden boy. Yeah, he's basically, he's the Marlon Brando of child prodigies and that he's brilliant, but he hates to work. Yeah, and I like Kent. I like his cronies. I like, um, again, I don't think this was in the script that I read last night, but uh, the one guy who is trying to cure his stutter with um, electroshock and just Atherton's little up the voltage. The callous disregard for human being safety around him, it kills me. He's so... he's. He's just so cool. If anybody on that campus was going to become a Batman villain, he would be Mr. Freeze. He just doesn't care about anything. I could, I could see that cartoon, right? Chris, build me the laser by the 30th. I have to help my wife. And he's such a dick to Kent. That whole, like, you don't get to use my name. Makes him do his la- get his laundry. Like, it's, it's so demeaning. Yet, at the same time, he's such a toady that you're just kind of like, yeah, yeah, go get his laundry. Get out of here, Kent. No one wants you here. And my favorite thing is that it's one of his fucking cronies that's like, well, I guess it's God to Jerry to you to the cleaners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even his cronies don't respect him. I never noticed this until last night. So I've been watching this movie 
since 1986. Like you, Chris, I saw it probably on HBO. I want to say it's one of the first times that we meet Ik Ikigami that he is doing experiments on fruit and he has this huge cherry. I never noticed that before. I love that. Every time I see it, I'm like, I bet it tastes like candy. And that's me at like 14 years old. I want want to eat that giant cherry from that movie. See, when I saw that for the first time, because it has such a giant stem, I thought it was a cherry bomb that was in the form of a cherry. But then also, but then later on, there's the apple that explodes. So I don't know if like, did he also make that? Is like, is this a whole side hustle that he has? I don't know. And we should talk to you about the character of Jordan Cochran, who I tried to get Michelle Myrink on the show, but unfortunately she's like, oh, I'm a terrible interview. And I'm like, oh, come on. I'm sure you'd be fine. I don't remember when Manic Pixie Dream Girls were a thing, but she's like the most manic of the Manic Pixie Dream Girls. Diagnosed, (laughs) yes. Yeah, (laughs) diagnosed manic. Plus, I love that she doesn't sleep, that she is up knitting all night. She's uh, sanding her floors. (laughs) Drove one of her roommates to uh, institutionalization. Has no respect for personal boundaries, just comes right into the bathroom when uh, Mitch is trying to take a pee. That's my favorite exchange. And yet you can't be mad at her because she looks like Martha Quinn. She's super cute. So, like, what are you going to do? <laughs> oh, my God, is she cute. And she's just so freaking bubbly. And even when she's getting angry, and I love that little exchange when Sherry, remember Sherry? When Sherry tracks down Mitch and wants to fuck him and then it's like what you you boned her and he's like no I didn't you know I want basically I want to bone you and it's like oh that's so cute that's they're such a cute couple these characters these characters that aren't Mitch and Chris are really important to the story and that they really move stuff along and of course Laszlo I mean my god I fucking love Laszlo and what a great introduction to a character to just have this guy that you see here and there almost like a rite of passage as Mitch is trying to get into the closet in order to see Laszlo and that it's only after he can raise himself up to a certain level it's almost like some sort of like hero's journey now you can go see and he doesn't even talk with him he just goes down and spies on the sage and then eventually the sage comes down from the mountain or out of the closet and speaks with Mitch and delivers all this knowledge one of the deleted passages of Joseph Campbell's writings is always the meeting of Laszlo. I don't know if they did it on purpose, but I thought it was interesting how when he first tries, when Mitch first tries to find the door, it's all like like childish flat hands slapping against the wood and a little bit of knocking. But he doesn't find the door until he slows down and really investigates and finds the hidden button. So it's like he is growing as a person every time he's looking for him. When we first see Laszlo, there's also the implication that maybe he's just overworked and he's not actually seeing anybody at all. Maybe it's just it's just a process of his brain kind of rejecting whatever's going on. First time watching it, that little just surreal moment where he walks into the closet and disappears. I was like, all right, I don't know where this is going. And he walks through and I'm like, oh, okay, where's he going? (laughs) And then I was interested again. When you get those great montage sequences, I think there's at least two or three really good montages in here. So you get to see the development of Mitch 
And just the way he's like always dropping his books in that first montage when um, Kent honks at him. So we get the introduction of the car. You also get Laszlo handing Chris's books at one point. That whole uh, continuing thread of the tape players in the classroom that really ties that first montage together. I just really, or tape recorders, I should say, I just really like how well-structured it is. And they put that montage in at the perfect time. And that, you know, to me is, I talked about how you use like the old timey music at the beginning. These montages are, here's the eighties pop hit, which is really very particular to that time and place. But even now in 2022, I'm just like, yeah, this fucking works. I really like this. And it's essential to building the character's arcs. It's not a montage for the sake of montages. I think Real Genius might have been the first time I had ever heard of yogurt. I don't think I knew what that was in 1986. This is a pre-TCBY world. I actually worked at TCBY for one night. (laughs) (laughs) I was not going to clean that yogurt machine a second time. Thank you very much. So there's a reason why the shake machine is broken, ladies and gentlemen. And yeah, that banter you know i mentioned all the side characters and and of course laszlo but the heart and soul of this movie is that relationship between mitch and chris it's a very interesting one because and i i talk about this a lot in the interviews it's mitch's movie but it's chris on the poster and it's chris who you remember and it's chris who probably gets the first line in the trailer i mean this it's a weird thing to have this dichotomy between these two characters, like whose movie is this? But I think they balance it pretty well. The great thing about Mitch is that he feels like a real kid. Like he's not a movie kid in any way. So you actually feel like that he has something to learn from Chris, whether Chris is a good teacher or not. That's a whole separate issue, but you definitely get the feeling that it's not just the protagonist and then this this side protagonist comes in and distracts everything that they need to work in tandem in order for this thing to work. And I guess Mitch is kind of that Mary Sue type character, right? He's the new guy on campus. So he gets people teaching him these things yet. He's also incredibly smart. And you just know that right from the get go that his high school science project is the laser and he's doing things with that laser that he then applies to the massive laser to the you know space laser it's just amazing he's the wesley crusher of this film yeah okay i can see that but just i don't want to yell at him to shut up shut up wesley and another smart thing about this movie that i like is that we get another echo which is this whole idea of following the laser beam that you've got the one when Mitch is overworking himself and Chris is like no let's it's time to party we need to let off some steam so we follow the laser across campus and it what is it the tanning invitation tanning invitation thank you and the big party and you know this is like what we think of with an 80s movie right the, the bunch of buxom blondes and they're all the beauty school that scene goes on for way longer in the script there's a lot of like side characters talking to these beauticians and i'm glad that they cut it out because it really is smacks of like virgin desperation as opposed to the way that it's set up now which feels like they're kind of equals rather than just like oh my god these 
these virgins, these science nerds are here with all these pretty girls. I mean, again, to your point, Ryan, very Revenge of the Nerds at this point. It could have gone, but they stayed away from that. There's a moment in that scene where Mitch is sitting all by himself. And I guess it's the, the lecture hall part of that, the tanning invitational. And watching that moment, I'm like, that's me. That's literally, that's, if I'm in that situation, that is me. And I don't have that in Revenge of the Nerds. I can't ever look at any character and go, yep, I've been there. Yeah. It's like, no, I, I haven't molested anybody wearing a Darth Vader helmet. So I don't think I can really say that I'm like uh, Robert Carradine in any way. But I can say that I am like Mitch. Even though he's, I'm not nearly as smart as You him. haven't played an electric violin? I, I gave it up a long time ago. There's little clever things. I like the idea of Darlington Electronic Instruments being the sponsor of Jerry's show, which is an anagram of die, which is nice. And they're also the people who are creating the laser. And I didn't know that until I was reading the script. And it's actually a different anagram. I think it's PI or PEI in uh, the script and then changing just one letter so that it's Darlington and die. I was like, Oh, okay. That's, that's nice. Again, just like little fine tuning that they're doing and really just takes that script up another level. And something I learned from the audio commentary is that DEI apparently at Caltech is the acronym that is on every invention that the, that the students invent. And so that was Martha Coolidge's in-joke for everybody at uh, at Caltech. That's really nice. Yeah, I like that they actually did research and talked with nerdy people and went to these schools and stuff, which is amazing that it wasn't just like, oh, we'll just make this shit up. Yeah, nobody's got time for that anymore. The whole idea of putting the car in Kent's room, that's uh, based on a real prank. I think we've all heard of that prank before, but... Uh, when I talk with Neil Israel later on, you'll hear him say like, oh, yeah, no, we we talked to the, the people that did that in this, you know, this guy's dorm room. I never noticed until last night either that there are greasy handprints on Kent's wall after that. The next time you see him in his room when he's getting the message from God. Oh, just stupid little details like that really add to this movie as well. It's it's texture. It it really it, it adds to the to the overall flavoring of everything. It continues the the grounding of the universe by kind of making everything a little bit tangible. Their individual dorm rooms, the whoever whoever did the set dressing, just lived in those rooms for a while in each one and moved on. I don't know. They looked they looked actually lived in and not like Hollywood dorm room style. Even the neat rooms were still messy. The uh, even the 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 lecture halls <laughs> looked a bit run down. It just everything just felt right what you would expect to walk into i don't think there's any part where i'm like eh, that doesn't feel right i mean maybe the graffiti on the walls in the dorm i'm like well that might be a little much but it seems like it works and the graffiti itself is smart things rather than just like you know Kilroy was here kind of stuff. So it's like it's like inmates at the uh, mental institution drawing on the walls, but they're intelligent students. Was it Dean Devlin is the guy who goes nuts at one point and just uh, again during one of the montages? He, he went nuts and in that process uh, created the story for Stargate. And that was the day I saw the Stargate. Just going back to Kent for a second. Robert Prescott. He is chameleon as Kent. Like, I've seen him in a lot of things, not realizing that I had seen him in things. 
just, I guess, with the hair and the the ascot and especially those braces, because you see him in other pictures, you see him in other things, and you're just like, that's the same guy? He just does not look like it. And I mean, also the thing that helps too is he's so tall and it looks like he could pick up and crush anybody in the movie, but he's just so fucking nerdy that you wouldn't expect Kent to haul off and slap somebody across the face. Yeah, He looks like a roided out Anthony Michael Hall. Like the first time I saw this, I, I actually had to do a double take. I'm like, is that Anthony? No, that can't be. The, the timing doesn't work out. But man, are they a splitting image of, of uh, Anthony Michael Hall. I love that Laszlo doesn't actually have a line until 58 freaking minutes in this movie. His character, I mean, a lot of people nowadays, like when they see John Grise, they're like, oh, it's Uncle Rico. But it's like, for so many years, it was just like, oh, it's Laszlo. This was his character. No matter what he was playing, he was always Laszlo first to me. Oh, first roles always, always stick. And I hated um, Paul Reiser for so long after, after Aliens. I'm like, that guy's just a jerk. Yeah, I mean, that whole Mad About You, I mean, he was such a jerk in that, too. I never watched that. That was the thing. Everybody always brings that up, and I'm like, but I didn't see. Look, come on. I couldn't stand that show. Not enough xenomorphs in it. Yeah, I don't know what he was so mad about. This movie is an hour and 51 minutes long. You wouldn't think that it was more than an hour and 30 but it uses everything really well. There's no point during this where I'm just like, oh, they could have cut this. They could have cut that. I mean, like I said, they cut a lot of stuff from that original script, which only ran 113 pages. So they buffed up some stuff, but everything just works. I think, too, the the longest sequence of the film is when they plan to get revenge slash get the laser taken care of. And I really like, too, that... You know, they've made mentions of Laszlo, you know, like even the first time when Jerry talks with Mitch, he's like, oh, no, the youngest person to ever go to the school was 12 years old. And then you find out as the movie goes along, that was Laszlo and this whole thing of like why he is the way that he is, that they were using his research for weapons and for bad things. It's like, wow, that's really nice that this is a whole thread, that he's that original person. And then that he basically, it's Laszlo's revenge, really, is when they take care of the laser stuff. And you kind of get like a, a look into the future. Like what can happen if they continue to be exploited by Jerry Hathaway? If they continue to to push themselves far beyond their breaking point, then they become Laszlo. Chris even tells him that. He's like, well, you're going to be Laszlo. So they recognize that they are on this path, but it's really Laszlo that saves them from it. And just like, have you guys thought about this? Like what this implies? <laughs> the look on their face when he spells it out is just, they're the dumbest people in the room at that point because they never, they never thought about what they're going to use it for. Because it was just the purity of the work achieving the goal, which is, which is admirable, but valuable lesson learned. And by forcing them to, to kind of reconcile with the moral choice that they that they have to make, that is such a not an 80s thing. 80s thing is all about never questioning the morality and just assuming that it's, yeah, it's all right, it's whatever. But here they actually have to reckon with that. Well, and it's like the prank in other movies. It's like, oh, you know, 
the dean did this, so we're going to, I don't know, put a horse in his uh, office or something or, you know, have him get a blowjob when he's trying to give his uh, big acceptance speech or something. And this one, it's like, no, they're getting revenge for a really good reason and doing a very clever thing. And I was going to say, too, I was talking about that laser earlier, pointing them to the tanning invitational. I like how the second time that the laser goes off when it's actually like the time for them, that they follow that laser again. And that's what leads them to Purgatory, uh, home of the Limbo Burger, this biker bar. And that when Laszlo shows up at the biker bar, you're just like, oh, shit, this is really serious because we've really only ever seen him on campus, that he's off campus and coming to them with this message. It's just like, this must be some serious shit. Is it any coincidence that he approaches the fallen in limbo looking like Jesus preaching peace? I mean, that has to be on purpose, right? I think so. Yeah, I would hope so, because that's that's a it's a little obvious, but I love it. All hail Laszlo, full of grace. And what do they do? They become God. They get into Kent's head. They become God by getting into Kent's head, and then they are the finger of God with that laser destroying Jerry's house. Yeah, they should teach this movie at Sunday school. They should. And that religious moment that Kent has in Jerry's house when the beam hits that mirror and starts to split and you see Kent's hands go back and his eyes close and and his head goes up. And then when the popcorn starts, he's just completely flummoxed. And I love that they're trying to save him, but they won't run into the house. It's just like, no, we're going to be here across the street. Thank you very much. They they try to get his attention, but if he doesn't want it, if he doesn't want it, that's fine. That's fine. That is definitely a scientist thing, right? Like, you know, something's going on here. You shouldn't be there. We're telling you we're over here. We're not getting in the way of that. <laughs> that's a Spider-Man villains are born. Oh, that dude's in that pit. Oh, sucks to be him. All right. Toxic. What? Uh-oh. Well, I don't know. Guess it's time to change my name and move. So Sandman doesn't find me now. I guess popcorn man it is. <laughs> the colonel. Oh, I'm trying to imagine like his outfit. I guess like if he's like the Sandman, it's the outfit that he was in when he got turned, right? So Kent just always has the ascot. People are like, are you a very tall Peter Bogdanovich? And those Riddler glasses that he's wearing. The way he stands is is comedic genius. He holds his hands behind his back like someone that's never done anything athletic in their whole life. Like, like not even participated in gym class in grade school or anything. And he's, he looks so physically awkward. And, you know, I always give credit in my head, mostly to actors that will make themselves look ridiculous for the joke. And, you know, my, my hats off. I hated him when I was younger because we all knew people that were jerks like that, but watching it and watching him just pull the comedy against the, the, he's the straight man but he's pulling off jokes. It's it, that's a hard line to, to do without making yourself look pathetic. The whole movie just walks that line of, Oh, look, we have a school full of neurodivergent people, but we're not going to make fun of them. Well, maybe Kent, but we're not going to make fun of him because he's divergent. We're going to make fun of him because he's an asshole. And that's a good reason, Be, you know, <laughs> hate people because they're assholes individually and everybody gets along. Mitch is certainly different than Chris and um, his girlfriend. And that's the one thing 
aside from everything else that Jordan did that was like just weirdly adorable. She's she deeply cares about these people she's just met. That's like the kind of friendship you want with somebody when you're little and you see that and you're like, ah, oh, damn, yeah, that I got to find me one of those people. <laughs> That's nice. She was just so genuine and, and innocent and the school hasn't broken her yet, which is which was really nice. That's something that carries over into the entire movie is that it, it has characters that are cynical or self-aware, but it's sincere. It's a very sincere film. Kent handles those jokes, too. There's a moment when uh, Chris tries to embarrass him by talking about how he found him naked with a plate of Jello, And at first you're just like, okay, he's making that up. But then Kent comes back with, it was hot and I was hungry. And I'm like, okay, that's great. And that I like that he makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, good. And, and then you start wondering like, so what did that scene look like? I just picture him with it over his crotch, like just this big, like, uh, like a bunt cake type of thing with the jello. You know what I mean? Like that. Yeah. That's what I picture. <laughs> just right over the crotch, white plate, red jello. It's got to be the cherry jello. I don't know why, but that's the image in my it's head. It's because of all the yellow you associate with them, right? You want the red to. It's a color palette thing. You wouldn't understand. Can't. His comeuppance isn't really that bad, like that he's in the popcorn and he seems to actually genuinely be having a fun time when they pull him out. And it's almost like maybe there's hope for Kent after all. I get the impression that if there were to be a real genius, too, I don't think he would be an antagonist anymore. I don't think he would be like one of the guys, but he would be an ally, at least. Chris and Mitch's kids would go to the same private school or something and he would be on the school board and he'd just give him a hard time but when it came down to it we're gonna go shut down another uh war crime before it happens chris that stuff doesn't happen anymore all of this technology that's being investigated is all just for peaceful applications that's right that's right right and if we follow the jesus allegory through that's ed 209 is a pacification system and robo jesus the symbolic robot clearly died for all of old Detroit's sins. I don't know what I'm talking about. It's, it makes sense, man. Just riff. Just riff. Fantastic. All right. I always appreciate seeing Severn Darden. And so him being the kind of clueless uh, dean of the school, but yet still kind of as hip to what's going on. I do really like that they use the cutaway to go away from them as they explain to uh, the dean and to the congressman who shows up uh, without any sort of entourage or anything. I was very happy about that. But then coming back to them and they're just like, that's terrible. I'm like, thank you so much for cutting away from that and catching them up at that, <laughs> that point. And getting the great character detail of him wearing the bunny slippers. I love that. I love and that Chris is in the same slippers. To your point from earlier, Mr. Bricklemeyer, you know, maybe now uh, uh, Chris becomes the dean of the new schools. And, you know, because he's already wearing the bunny slippers. Change it from the inside. And then, yeah, that we end with Laszlo getting all the prizes, getting the girl, the return of Sherry. Do you remember Sherry? She's back. And this is the number one smartest guy. And she's been looking for this guy, what'd she say, for 10 years? So I guess Laszlo's now 22. And she knew about him when he was 
12 going into this school. So that's not creepy at all. But yeah, him just putting on those sunglasses, that whole, it's kind of getting kind of weird around here. I just really love the wrap up of this movie and especially, you know, cue the tears for fears and all the kids playing in the popcorn in slow motion. There's just something very pure about the end of this movie. And it looks amazing. That last minute and a half of just the, the frolicking through the popcorn. It's one of those things where you look at it and it's like, this was shot by Vilmos Zygmunt. Like, that's amazing that there's an 80s comedy that was shot by the guy who shot Blowout and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That's amazing. What's amazing to me that I know Martha Coolidge had done, uh, you mentioned Valley Girl earlier, uh, Joy of Sex was one of them. But, like, I was more familiar with her earlier work that she was doing, like, eight years before, like, Not a Pretty Picture, which is a really harrowing film. I mean, it's about date rape. And, like, she was of this much more feminist school of filmmaking. And, I, you know, I have to say Valley Girl definitely has some um, more uh, feminist angles as well, which I appreciate. I really like that movie. You know, you're talking about... What what is Vilmos Sigmund doing directing this? It's almost like what is Martha Coolidge doing directing this? And she handled it great. I I really wish that she was still directing movies. Like it, it I'm glad that she like moved on to television and you know she's still getting work and all that stuff. And I think she was the president of the DGA at one point. I think you're right. But I really wish she was still making like mainstream comedies because I still think we need voices like that. You know, they're still are obviously making comedies, but they're much more of a different breed than this is. You don't necessarily get a real genius in 2022. Yeah, it's right now. It's kind of like the Apatow school of uh, let's see how many riffs we can get. Let me let me uh, try to dunk on you with this this great improvisation. We we need studio comedies to come back to this a little bit. One of the thing with those Apatow movies is we're going to leave every fucking riff in here. This movie was edited with a very tender hand. You know, there is nothing left in this movie that shouldn't be in this. I mean, this is really well put together. Even with two full montages. And one of those montages feels like the full song. But still, you're like, they have to learn all of this stuff, and we got to go through the semester, and this is the way to do it. And, oh, we got a plan to uh, raid a United States Air Force base and tamper with government equipment. Uh, we got to do a montage for that. And, there, and, and like, the, the, the tanning invitational and the ice scene, those are all, like, they're bits, almost like it's a variety show movie with Mitch's story, but it all ends up meaning something together in the end which is which is more than a lot of uh i guess comedies do with the cutaway stuff but that there were so many opportunities to just drag out a scene or cut something way too short they didn't really the characters you you feel in the end they go through the entire school year and they they earn what they've done those scenes in other movies have been done poorly but this is like this is the positive way that that can turn out that if you have a sure hand, and if you know that you're you're crafting a narrative that has to have a specific endpoint, like this is the way to do it. Also, this is one of the this is one of the the few comedies where none of the characters are morons, and that doesn't delay the plot. That's a huge difference too. All these people are capable. This is a 
movie about very smart people, but they're not talking down to us, the audience. They trust mm. that we can follow what's going on with all of this, including the creation of a laser and what's going on with the power and that they need, you know, 10.21 gigawatts or whatever to be able to do this. And it's like, okay. But that's, that's the thing that, that's great is they just say, okay, well, we're at, we're at three. We need to get to five by June. And they're like, that's impossible. I'm like, okay, they have now told me what the reasonable expectations are for this. So now they can say whatever they want. And I will, I will buy up all of the technical stuff they throw at me because I know, I know the main crux of it. And that's me as like in my teens. I'm like, I got you, movie. Let's go. And it's it that's 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 a really smart thing. And Ghostbusters did the same thing. They're like, we can trap a ghost, but they were real smart because they first showed you, look, ghosts are real. So you're like, okay, you can see it, you filmed it, you yelled at it, you have a thing that detects them. Why not be able to catch them? And and the movie does the, the real genius does the same thing with setting up your expectations. And movies don't treat their audiences like they're capable of following ideas they're not familiar with i guess which is why we don't get a lot of uh, like like uh, the the closest we get to wormhole discussion up until interstellar i suppose was event horizon and that was just that was that was lowest common denominator there same metaphor though same piece of paper one thing that they changed to from the script is that somehow they're doing this weird math where Mitch was joining mid-year, so he was coming in after Christmas. And so he was just there from, and they say in the movie, they say June. So he was just basically there from, which, I don't know, maybe they're on a trimester system, because I know with uh, regular two-semester years, you were usually at around like April or so. But anyway, um, they were doing this stuff where it's like, oh yeah, he's going to go there post-Christmas and be there till June. And I'm glad that they don't do that. I'm glad that it feels very much, to your point, Chris, like a full school year. It feels like they start in September and yeah, they, they just push past stuff and they don't have to do the now it's October and we're going to see the Halloween celebration. Then we'll see the Christmas celebration. Then we'll see, you know, Easter, none of that stuff, even though I guess Easter would have fit with your metaphor, but just, you know, that they just don't worry about that stuff and they just go through it and just take us along because that's the thing with this film is that I feel like I'm in such capable hands that I just, I trust this movie and I'm not, well, when is this and how did this happen and how many days have passed? It's just like, yeah, okay. I've got a couple really strong montages in here. I don't worry about that stuff. You look at it and you go time. It passes. That's, that's it. That's all you need. And it's set in, I'm assuming Southern California. Cause the weather's the exact same through the whole movie. And it's probably cheaper to just like drive 30 miles then go to canada it, it doesn't matter it's like it, to them holidays and time uh except for deadlines are irrelevant it's just it's getting the word and we're thrown into that with them so yeah they're not gonna i mean maybe there was a decoration or two up here like in the whole course of the whole movie like maybe a pumpkin but there's no let's show everybody how smart they are you know at halloween where they can make all the fog for the whole campus and they had no rivals either there was no animal house style shenanigans it was just individuals yeah you're right there's no other camp across the lake that they have to show up at the big olympic games at the end of the 
And yeah. I can identify more with that than being in a frat because that never appealed to me. That's my personal opinion. Not saying anything about anything. There, I saved you one email. Let's go ahead and we're going to take a break and we're going to play a trio of interviews. First, we will hear from real genius screenwriter Neil Israel. After that, we will hear from Mitch himself, Gabriel Jarrett. And last and certainly not least, the man who played Laszlo Hollyfeld, John Grise. And we'll be back with all of that right after these brief messages. These movies are hot. My name is T2756. Would you like to have sex with me now for money? You know what? Honestly, cool. These movies are bloody. It's feeling a lot braver before I knew there was going to be murder and then threats of murder. Oh, yeah. I mean, you didn't think you could go to Texas Instruments without murdering someone, did you? These movies are audio only. Worst Movies Ever Played is back with three new VHS movies for your ears. Anything can happen in this actual play RPG podcast. And we mean anything. What did you build that went so poorly a while back? Oh, I tried to build a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it also became a libertarian. Those worthy of freedom do not beg for it. They simply take it. Oh, this is a super bummer. Subscribe to Worst Movies Ever Played wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we're going to hear from Real Genius co-writer Neil Israel. I have been uh, a longtime fan of Tunnel Vision, and I'm so curious how that project came about. I had a job at uh, CBS. I was in charge of the trailer department. When you do trailers, you get to see all the shows, and then you have to try and pull out the parts of it that you think are interesting enough for people to watch. And I realized the similarities of the shows, the cliches of the shows, and the stupidities of the shows. And I grew up watching five hours of television a day. You know, I was the one that the mother would say, why don't you go out and play ball? What are you doing in front of a TV all day? You're not normal. TV was my life. Finally, working on the inside, I could see how absurd it was. So the idea of doing a satire of it wasn't that crazy. But this was an interesting transition in comedy because, you know, the shows that, that we had on the networks, I'd worked at ABC before CBS, they were still leftovers from the 50s, basically. You still had Lucille Ball, although she wasn't with Desi Arnaz. She was still with Vivian Vance. Dick Van Dyke had a show. It wasn't with Mary Tyler Moore, but uh, the dramatic shows, you know, you had Cannon and Mannix and these detective shows that could have been Perry Mason from the 50s. They were in a certain group. But what was going on was you had the 60s. You had hippies. You had a world that had fallen apart because of drugs and assassinations and everything else. So you had the TV of the older generation, but then you had the baby boomers and the, who were the, the hippies, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, for Pete's sake. None of that was reflected in television at all. And so comedy was just starting to reflect that, but not on television. That's why you saw in rapid succession my movie, Kentucky Fried movie, Groove Tube, and then Saturday Night Live. They all were of the same mentality and all of, and in many cases, the same people. I had people from Second City, John Candy, Betty Thomas, Joe Flaherty, 
I had people from every other improv group that was happening at that time. The committee, um, which was a San Francisco group. We had people from that. We had Phil Proctor from Firesign Theater. Then we had Lorraine Newman, Chevy Chase, Franken and Davis, Al Franken, um, who went on to Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live came on the air six months before Tunnel Vision was in the theater, but Tunnel Vision was shot a year before that. So you know that a lot of the people involved in Saturday Night Live had seen what we were doing. So we were very fortunate in a way because the, the distributor was a small distributor who took the movie. None of the mayors would take the movie. They didn't understand it. They didn't want it. But the small little distributor who took it, you know, put on the poster, oh, Chevy Chase and all this stuff. <laughs> because by then, these were household names. They weren't when we shot the movie. And uh, even though Chevy's in the movie in about 45 seconds, that's how the movie came about. I was still at CBS when we made it. While we were editing it, we edited it while we were at CBS, and the brass at CBS found out about it. I got fired, got a distributor, and then got a three-picture deal with Fox. So it all kind of worked out. I imagine that you and Phil Proctor got along pretty well because you would go on to work on Americathon with him. I love Phil Proctor. Phil Proctor just visited me a few weeks ago. I haven't seen him in a while. Um, I was a big fan of Firestein Theater. You know, Phil has a podcast, by the way. <laughs> plug it. It's called um, Sexy Boomers. And uh, he talks to uh, various boomers who we think are sexy, but I was lucky to be one of them. But yeah, I was promoting Tunnel Vision in Boston, and I went to see a Proctor and Bergman who was also in uh, Firesign Theater. And they were doing a show at an improv place, and it was called Americathon. Well, no, it's called Gothamathon. And it was, that's what it was. It was Gothamathon, and it was a uh, telethon to save New York that had gone into bankruptcy in New York City. And we started to talk, and I said, wouldn't it be funny if it was America that had gone into bankruptcy? And then suddenly we were working on that idea. I love that movie. And, you know, you mentioned the talent involved in Tunnel Vision, but the talent in Americathon, my goodness, is just so filled with amazing faces and so many familiar people. I know by then we had a little bit of money because we had made the tunnel vision for very little money, but we had money because we actually had a studio that believed in it. Again, nobody believed in it except one guy who had run Paramount. Now he was running Lorimar. He went on to be the, uh, the editor and publisher of Variety, Peter Bart. He believed in it. He had been a political journalist, a journalist at the New York Times. Political satire is a very, very difficult thing to pull off. That's why we don't see much of it. I'm so glad Adam McKay is doing it because there's very, very few people have the guts <laughs> to try and do it. Yeah, by then we were able to attract some amazing people. I mean, when I think about who was in it, it, it is it is quite, quite it's astounding. For whatever reason, the part with Meatloaf is always one of my favorite bits. I know, I know, I know. And Dorothy Stratton, that poor girl, she was murdered maybe two, three years after that. Yeah, she was in it. And uh, Fred Willard and uh, Elvis Costello. And uh, gosh, there was so many people in it. It was like uh, Peter Riegers, right? He just he was just on uh, Animal House. I love the whole um, Alan Arbus. Wasn't he playing in... And Arab yeah. in that one, and then Chief Dan George. Yes, and Chief Dan George. Yeah, yeah. The Hebrews had 
Yes, Israel and their Arab neighbor, neighbors became one nation. There, there's a dream. And the idea was that there was an oil crisis or the world had run out of fossil fuel and people were living in their cars, which were abandoned, right? This was before, of course, we figured out that you could have electric-powered vehicles and all you needed was cobalt. You know, in some ways, it sort of it did predict certain things that happened, as did tunnel vision. Tunnel vision really did predict cable television and streaming and of the outrageous lengths that broadcasters will go to to get clicks. I mean, all of that was in the making, even in the, the early 70s, believe it or not. That was not a shock. Did you know Pat Prof before the, the Steve Martin special that you did? Yes. He was actually in Tunnel Vision, although he was cut out. That's when we met. Yeah. And then we wrote a, um, a musical for Ringo Starr that was done on NBC, which you really should look at. It's pretty wild. Uh, Ringo's in it, George Harrison, uh, John Ritter plays his manager, Vincent Price plays his therapist, Carrie Fisher plays his girlfriend, and Art Carney plays his father. It's pretty wild, and it's a musical. It's <laughs> incredible. So Pat and I, that was the first time we actually wrote something together. And then we went on, we were writing television, we produced the Marie Osmond short-lived series together, which is also really fun. And a lot of our friends were in it. Then we uh, worked for Steve Martin doing those specials. And then um, uh, one of those specials was actually, it was the time when Saturday Night Live, they were, believe it or not, Lauren Michelson uh, quit the show. And the show wasn't doing well. And they were looking for other things to put in that slot. So they, were, they did the show Twilight Theater. Leslie Nielsen was the host of one of them. And Rodney McDowell was the host of another one. And it was really short little clips, some that we found, some people, little shorts, some that we made. Again, that's YouTube. It is exactly what YouTube is now. And uh, if you can find that, probably on YouTube. It's called Twilight Theater. And um, so we worked on that. And then while we were doing that, uh, we wrote Police Academy. And then Bachelor Party at the same time. Now, you were directing right out of the gate. How did that even become possible for you to be the writer and director at the same time on these early projects? My degree is in directing as a theater, as a theater major. And I worked as an assistant to a very famous Broadway director named George Abbott. And then I directed an off-Broadway show starring Michael Douglas. I was 22 years old. And I directed a bunch. I worked at the Eugene O'Neill Playwrights Conference and all these other great off-Broadway things and Summerstock and everything else. And I came to the West Coast because there was a program to learn how to uh, direct live television. And that didn't work out. I wasn't able to get a job. So that's when I took a job doing trailers. And that, then I got back into directing. So what about some of the projects where you would direct and then not write them? How did something like a, like a Combat Academy come up? Combat Academy, because of obviously a success of Police Academy, every television network wanted to get on that train. And I didn't really want to do television at that point. But a friend of mine, who I knew for years and also went to my university, Hofstra, did a lot of television movies. He said, look, it'll be fun. You don't have to write it. Just supervise the writer. And, you know, you could produce it. You could direct it if you want. And the guy who had written, I did this movie, which when it came out was called Breaking the Rules with Jason Bateman. And he wrote that. And I said to him, you know, do you have any ideas? He said, yeah, I said, okay. So he wrote a wonderful script. And I thought, sure, I'll direct it. 
Amazingly, um, a young man came in. I thought he'd be great. His name was George Clooney. <laughs> we cast him in it. Robert Culp was in it. It was kind of fun. That was a fun movie. We've had uh, Keith Gordon as a friend of the show. He's been on many, many times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keith's the best. Keith's the best. And he was great. He was great in that. Absolutely great. Fabulous director. You know, he sat with me. We looked at the dailies while we were shooting that. We shot it in Missouri. We were staying at some hotel. He'd come to my room. We'd look at dailies. And it was so great because he would look at me and he was looking at it like it wasn't him in the, in the, in the shot. He said, well, you should cut it there. Or, you know, cut me out. Cut that. Cut to that. He really had a director's eye. Very, very talented guy. And then kind of conversely, how do you get on a project like Real Genius where then you don't direct it? I'm trying to remember the chronology. I think Real Genius, I think that when we wrote that, we wrote a lot of movies at the same time. I think we were working on Bachelor Party. At the, I, first of all, I wasn't available. But I think it was before Bachelor Party. Because Americathon didn't make any money. So therefore, uh, when a movie doesn't make money and you're the director, guess what? You don't get to direct again so fast. So I had to work my way back to that. And I believe at that point, we wrote it and then we went on to other things. And then not only wasn't I available, I don't think they wanted me to direct it because Bachelor Party hadn't come out yet. And then um, there was somebody did a rewrite on that movie too, in between. And um, there were some gags that we didn't do that somehow found a way into it. But that always happens. You're always surprised when you see something you haven't, you know, that you wrote two years ago and then you go to see it. It's like, where did that come from? Wow. What was your original vision for Real Genius? Well, there was an, um, an article in Omni Magazine, which is a science magazine, and some executive that we worked with at NBC said, you got to read this. This is a movie. And he was right, because it was about the pranks that the uh, seniors at Caltech have been doing since the 20s on each other. I think there's something called Seniors Day or Prank Day. And because these guys are engineers, the pranks are so unbelievable. And some alumni had gathered together all of these pranks that it was in the Caltech library. And I just went through them and went, oh, my God, this is amazing. You know, like the guy uh, taking apart a car and assembling it on the second floor of the dormitory in his room with the engine running. A guy did that. I mean, just for an example, I said to Pat, this is, this is phenomenal. So I enrolled in a course in um, Argon Laser just so I could get a feel of what it was like to be there and be around these people. And um, it was arranged for me. I could... Uh, the studio arranged for me to go and talk to people, talk to professors, talk to kids and everything. We always did that kind of research. We did it on um, police academy, too. We went to like three different police academies. Bachelor party. The only research we did was my brother's bachelor party. Real genius. I, I actually got a lot out of that class and realized that lasers can be used not only for medical purposes, but can be used for defense purposes, which is where the idea for uh, the whole third act of that movie came from. So, you know, and those characters, they were all there. The guy who lives in the steam tunnel, that was a guy who lived in the steam tunnel. He had invented something when he was still in college and was frightened to go out into the world. And Caltech let him live in the base, let him live running through these tunnels, which were, I guess, left over from World War II. I don't know what they were doing down there. The girl, the very, very hyper girl, I met her. She was there. But most of these guys seemed very 
scientifically brilliant and socially immature. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. My son is an engineer right now. He's at UCLA as a senior. I mean, his friends, his world, that's what they are. That's the way it is. Most of those characters were not a pure invention of my imagination or Pat. We saw those kids and um, used them. We used every, almost every single one of them. The, uh, the uh, professor is a combination of several people that we met there. I mean, we had to have a villain. But um, they did work on defense contracts there. JPL, which is part of Caltech. I remember going up there. There was one guy who um, was very close to his mother. He was one of the senior engineers. And he wore a woman's blouse and pearls around his neck. And, you know, women's earrings. I thought he was a transient or something, but he had no makeup. He had like a beard and everything. And I said to somebody, what's with that guy? So, well, he was very close to his mother and she passed away. That was the explanation. That, that's the kind of people. Those are the kind of people that we met. That's where a lot of the ideas, most of the pranks in the movie, we did not make up. The popcorn gag was made up and it wasn't made up by us. I have to say, <laughs> that was made up by somebody else. Uh, we were surprised with that one. But most of the other stuff, you know, the thing about the uh, coin made out of ice in the vending machine, somebody did that. That was a thing. The, and the, the vendor came to collect the money. It was just water in the uh, coin tray. The uh, the ice thing, oh, where they were all skating around, they turned the floor into ice, with all that stuff. That really happened. It's really quite amazing, quite incredible. So that's, what, 30 years ago? I can only imagine the things they've done since. They did one where they were in a game. Uh, it was Caltech versus another university. And you know how they call, hold up the cards in the stands to spell out their team? Well, these guys had figured out how to switch the cards. So when the other team held up their cards at the game, they held up Go Caltech. So we, we had about, I would say about eight years ago, Pat and I thought, you know, we really should just be real genius because there's so many fans. I mean, I cannot tell you how many fans and how much it means to people. I've gone to doctors. I've spoken to scientists. There's a gentleman now who's running for governor of Hawaii who's also an ER doctor who I'm very good friends with. He calls me Laszlo. These kinds of fans, this fan base, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. So I said to Pat about eight years ago, you know, maybe we should do it as a series. And why don't we do it almost like a sequel these people, these guys have all graduated and they're working together. Maybe they're working at JPL. Maybe they're working on a project together and we can sort of see what goes on in their lives. And we came up with the whole thing, but we could not get Sony to go along with it. They kind of felt like, well, we don't know if people want to watch it. And I mean, there's big bang theory. And I mean, that's like enough already. And I mean, big bang theory is not exactly what we what we were doing, but to them it was, and they were doing big back there. So we had some very funny ideas and some notes, and I and I said to Pat recently, you know, maybe we should look at it again. Maybe we'll do it as a streaming series, and maybe we just do it as a straight sequel movie. I don't know. I've always felt like that was our best work. Honestly, I've always liked it the most. Did the idea come about before the Strategic Defense Initiative, the the Star Wars program, or was that influenced by the Star Wars program? It might not have been before. I don't know, but I don't. That had nothing to do with it. I knew that from going to Caltech that you could use lasers in that way, and um, they could be uh, deployed from a satellite. And 
I also know that graduate students at Caltech have been used on um, projects like that and were not paid, by the way. The professors were, but the students were not. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if they were fooled into thinking they were working on one thing, but they were working on another? So that, that kind of you know, turned it for us. But no, it was not influenced by, by the reality. Reality ha- often rears its ugly head in fiction. You know, sometimes before and sometimes after. Yeah, when I watched it again the other day, I was reminded so much of drone strikes. Yeah, no, I know. No, it's just like we were saying about the tunnel vision. It it predates a lot of the things that have come that have since happened. But if you if you like, I'm writing something now that takes place 12 years from now, and it's a political piece. It's not that hard to project what's going to happen because if you think back. 12 years ago, if you think about start with Obama becoming president, it is not that difficult to project where we are now. And it's not that difficult to project what the reaction goes. Everything's reactive. Everything. Everything. From second they landed on Plymouth Rock to the present. Everything followed. And we're just reactive and we're very stupid. We blame whatever is happening now on whoever there is right in front of us. We never see what has led to that thing. For people, of, for instance, if you want to talk about the movie business, well, people are saying, well, streaming, gee, you think it's going to replace movies? Well, yes, of course it is. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's how technology works. You know, that's, that's, that's why the three networks got replaced. And that's why the cable, cable company, that's why people are cutting the cord. That's why, you know. On and on and on we go. It's it's all there. One thing I was found interesting about Real Genius is the balance between the Chris Knight character and the Mitch Taylor character. Well, it's Val Kilmer on all the posters. And really, it's kind of Gabriel Jarrett's movie. But, I mean, how did that go? How did you guys work out that balance between those two very strong leads, that kind of guy learning the ropes and then the guy who's been there and already knows everything is too cool for school. I think that that character, that's a character that we love and it's kind of in the Bill Murray mode of, I could give a shit, which is a a character that we like a lot. Uh, Gutenberg was sort of that guy in police Academy. Tom Hanks is that guy in bachelor party. Um, And one of the things about Bill Murray, especially if you look at, you know, the meatballs and stripes and that persona. It's a guy that we wish we were. We all wish that we could say whatever the hell we want, do whatever the hell we want, and somehow get away with it. But we can't. We can't. We're afraid. We're afraid of the repercussions. We admire that. That character, that cynic, which is definitely a big part of Pat and I, that we're writing ourselves. And then there's always the guy who comes into any institution who wants to get it right, who doesn't want to mess it up, who's afraid they're going to mess it up. Uh, That is usually the person that the cynic goes after because we all, you know, want to pervert the innocent some level. And that's another, you know, thing that people like to watch. So uh, I think that's where that, where that came from. What is that working relationship like with you and Pat Proft? We usually work on the story together. Um, Pat is extremely visual. I mean, he's 
he's verbal too, but he's extremely visual. He is a great improv person. You give him a scenario, he comes up with 12 ways to do it and to think about it and uh, the twist of it. And so I'm very structural. I work on character. Uh, we both do dialogue and jokes pretty well. So we have strengths, you know, and those strengths combined. So we work on the story and then we split the script in half and then we write our halves and then we come together and then we uh, work on the whole thing together. That's usually how it works. I mean, back in the day, uh, believe it or not, when we started working together, we were working on typewriters and we would sit uh, at two desks facing each other, just typing like crazy. And then I guess in the mid 80s, we switched to, uh, we used to have these. My computer looked like a sewing machine. I remember you picked it up with a handle. It was a box and it was heavy. And then the front part of it came down, revealing this dopey screen. It was all DOS, right? It was all just, um, you were just getting, it was just a typewriter, essentially, you know, and you could save it. There were no programs or apps. There was nothing like that. And uh, if you screwed up, you lost it. There was sometimes no way to get it back. There was no backup. It, it, it was it was horrible. The beginning of it was just terrible, especially when you're working on a deadline. But uh, that's how long we've been doing it. You can imagine. So yeah, we we still we still have been writing. Um, you know, uh, we're working on this, this political thing. We're working on. Um, we've written a not a sequel to Police Academy, but it's guys. I would like to cast it with some of the people from Police Academy, and these guys were detectives. They were fired for something that they did years ago, and now they have an opportunity to make it right. So they they come back together again. But they're older, not necessarily wiser. Their lives have not turned out well. So, I mean, it is a chance to see some of these guys. I I, I want to see some of those guys again. And there's other people too that I love that just don't work enough. I mean, there's fantastically funny people who just because they're in their fifties, so what? I mean, is there anybody funnier than Dana Carvey? I mean, that guy is the greatest, and I want to see him work. I mean, there's people like that. I still love John Lovitz, you know. Rob Schneider, who I, I did a movie with, is tremendously funny. These guys, Gutenberg. And I, I think I'm not alone. I think, I think the public wants to see them. So that's what we're hoping to do. When did you make the move more into television than feature films? I found um, the stress of making movies. And as I said, if you make as a director and you like directing, if your movies don't make enough money then you don't get to direct and in television, you just get to, you're working for somebody else. You just get to direct. And then you're a guest. I love, I love being a guest on somebody else's thing and just moving from thing to thing. I love that. Um, I got into working for Disney, which was really fun and no pressure. It was just pure enjoyment for me. So that's, that's um, you know, that was it. Now I'm back to writing because I moved to Santa Barbara and I really don't want to go down there as much. I mean, I, I worked in L.A. for about five years and hardly ever came up here. And then I got sick of it. So now I just love writing. Did you ever stop writing or did you just take time off while you were working on other things? While I was directing, I stopped writing. When I, I went through a 10-year period, I didn't write pretty much because I was just directing. I have to tell you, I really appreciated the uh, Brady Bunch movie that you did. That was fun. And I got to work with Sherwood Schwartz and his son and his daughter. That was so much fun. Just to work with those guys, such a blast. 
such a blast. I love that. Yeah, that was really great. You know, that White House is a set. You know, we shot the White House. You know where that set is? It's a standing set. It's in the middle, it's in the middle of a farm about 40 or 50 miles outside of Toronto. You go into this gate and it looks like a farm. And then there's like this big building and you go inside and, and it's here in the Oval Office and all the White House corridors. They shoot a lot of stuff there. I don't know. I don't even know how it got. Somebody built it there. I don't know. We shot that in Toronto. What have been some of your favorite things to do over the years? Well, I shot a movie for Di- for the Disney Channel that I loved. That I, that was really, really fun. Um, what they call it? Hounded. Taj Maori. And it was a, a little, like a little toy dog that was vicious. We built an animatronic head so that the thing would show its fangs and chase this kid. It was just, that was a blast. And uh, Ed Begley Jr. was in it. That was so much fun to do. That was that was definitely fun. Uh, the uh, series of Clueless was a blast. I did about, I don't know how many of those. A couple dozen of those. Loved it. Somebody did a sequel to Bachelor Party, and I didn't know much about it. And I suddenly got, when there, when somebody does a sequel to something that you wrote the original of, the writer's guild automatically arbitrates to see who gets credit. And I suddenly got a thing from the writer's guild that said there was an arbitration over Bachelor Party 2. And I went, Bachelor Party 2? Oh, yeah, I heard they were making a movie of Bachelor Party 2. Okay. Next thing I know, Pat and I got credit for this movie because apparently they had borrowed, and I put borrowed in quotes, enough of the first movie so that they got, we got credit. And then I saw this thing, and I, I, that was one of the low points of my life. I wanted to jump off a cliff. <laughs> it was so horrible. Oh, my God, it was so horrible. Yeah, I mean, yes, they ripped us off. But, I mean, it was, that, was a, that was a sad moment, and my name is on it. So it's not all glory. It's not all glory, Mike. Well, you said you didn't really recognize certain parts of Real Genius when you saw the movie. How involved were you with the production? Did you meet Martha Coolidge? Did you work with her on things? Or were you pretty much just done by that point? I was done. I met Martha Coolidge after the movie. I think I met her at a screening. And I met her since at the Director's Guild. Uh, we were involved in some stuff at the Director's Guild together. And lovely lady. And you know, I think she's very talented. Thrilled with what the work she did, certainly. But no, I was not. We were not, um, we were not involved. After we had done our thing, we've done our two or three drafts of it. As you, if you're going to succeed in this, you have to take your ego out of it. You have to um, do what you think is good and then let it go. You'll notice there aren't that many tours left, but there are people who get to, who, there are some who have been very successful and they deserve it. And, they're, and they are controlling everything. Instead, you and Pat are working together on this uh, political story. Are you now like passing files back and forth via the internet and Zoom calling and all that? We, do, we Zoom. Yeah, we always do. And anybody else I work with, it's all just like you and I are doing right now. Like, it's like our, isn't it like we're in the same room? Mr. Israel, thank you so much for your time. This has been truly a pleasure. My pleasure, too. I hope that all of your listeners will enjoy this.
up next, we are going to hear from Mitch himself, Gabriel Jarrett. And of course, I asked him how he got his start in show business. I grew up in Malibu. All of my friends uh, were were doing commercials and they were doing shows and they were doing... Uh, my best friend was... You remember Keith Coogan? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. So Keith, Keith's well-known um, and, uh, and he was doing it ever since he was five. So he was doing it big time. Uh, and I just started out just wanting to be, you know, doing the same stuff that my friends were doing. And then later on, it became more about, you know, the work and... Uh, I enjoyed being on set and doing the job. And uh, then it became just about the work because the jobs were less plentiful. And uh, the rest is history. You know, I just uh, really enjoy what I do. Did I read right that your dad was a writer and director? Yes. Yes. He didn't want me. uh, My actual beginning didn't have anything to do with that. Um, He didn't want me anywhere near the business. He was just like, oh, my God, this thing sucks. It's like. (laughs) Last thing I want to do is have my kid in there. And like, I'm certainly not going to be, you know, a set dad. And uh, so I kind of bypassed dad and my first job ever, ever, ever. <laughs> Back in the olden days, I used to have a, a, a magazine called Variety, you see? And, <laughs> and in the back, they had these audition casting books. And so, yeah, I, I just started looking in there. And the first thing I sent myself out on and got was something called uh, Mousercise, which was Disney's version of Jazzercise and, and you know, uh, an exercise show. It's just a bunch of kids just ah! you know, and a really energetic host trying to get us all whipped up. And so we're all moving around. That was my first job ever on mouse Sets. How did you even get around to these jobs? I sent my picture in, they called me in. I got on the bus from, yes, I know. <laughs> They're from Malibu, which is like, it's like all the way up the coast and uh, went in, they put me on tape and then they, uh, they called my, my dad and said, uh, you know, we hired uh, Gabe Jarrett. And my dad was like, I'm sorry, what? So the rest is history. There you go. How did you get cast uh, for Mitch in Real Genius? I auditioned for it. It was um, straight up as just about as, as normal and uneventful uh, uh, casting as you can possibly imagine, except for the fact that most of the interesting stuff happened before I got there. They had actually cast a, uh, a real, real genius, you know, someone smarter than me. And uh, that person was, uh, you know, uh, I think they were a geneticist. If I remember correctly. I don't, I don't remember, but this was a real 14-year-old that, that was in, I think he was going to Caltech. I may have all those facts wrong. It's been a while. So, um, but, but that's the basic gist of it. And they hired him and, and started in with him and, and he wasn't able to do, uh, he wasn't able to do the job that, I was hired to do, which is basically, you know, acting and not bump into the furniture and not stutter and not, not feel self-conscious, which of course I did all three, but it just didn't look like it. <laughs> uh, you know, they were, able, they were able to cut around it. Uh, but yeah, no, he just didn't, didn't, uh, his whole thrust was about the, the, you know, his doing his work and not about camera. So it was really something that he got self-conscious about or whatever the reason was, it just didn't work. So they put out a casting notice. And saw about 4,000 people nationwide, and I ended up getting there. And you were what, like 14 at the time? 14, actually 14. How did you balance school and work at the same time? Ah, that's a good question. I didn't. Um, they, they pulled me out of school, um, and I had a set teacher, just the old-fashioned way. They, the way they used to do it back in the day, they would put a set teacher on full-time with the student, and I would bank hours of class in case I had like a full work day that was not, it could not include class because of the shooting schedule. They would, they would have me in class on a certain schedule. 
So I would bank hours uh, and kind of get ahead with the homework and ahead with the stuff so that I could go ahead and do those days if they came up, which they did quite a few, where I couldn't do my regular hours when we were shooting. But for the most part, they put you on a schedule and, and anytime, you know, you're on a break or other actors are waiting for setups to happen, then I am in school and they'll, uh, you know, the, the first ADs and, and uh, the powers that be, the producers will, will schedule around those times that the kids need to be in school, um, except for those rare moments. And then you got the bank hours. So that, I, but it did, it's still, it did, I mean, as you might imagine, it still interrupted it. I mean, and there's those rules about how you can't work so many hours and correct yeah yeah so they definitely have um have a, a good line on that i kind of cheated i cheated not everybody cheats um but i cheated i i took the uh the chesby the california high school proficiency exam so i was actually graduating at that moment even, even though i was 14 or whatever i had actually technically graduated i didn't have to my parents insisted that i stay and like go through all of that anyway which I'm kind of glad because I graduated regular as well. I have graduated uh, with a regular diploma after that. How did you prepare for a role like Mitch? And it must have been quite a little bit more work than you were used to with just all the lines that you had to learn. The lines were not really the problem. Actually, none of it was a problem for me. I think I think the the nice thing about Mitch is that it came along and it required the temperament that I had at the time. Which was scared shitless and, and having no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> no, no, I'm being a little bit dramatic, but but I hadn't done a whole lot of character work, you know. Uh, at, at that point, I was 14, so like just pretty much what I was good at was being myself and naturally reacting in the moment as myself. I was pretty much a geek, so what you see is kind of me. It was, it really was. You know, and save for the situational stuff that they put me in. But but yeah, that was pretty much my reactions to whatever would have been happening to Mitch is, is is what you see. So it wasn't a lot of prep work. It was more just remi- constantly reminding myself to react the way I would if I were in that situation. So it wasn't it wasn't a lot of deep character. What is he? What kind of pizza does he have? You know, none of that. It was just that it was just it was just it just relax and just do your thing. You didn't spend uh, a month writing a backstory for your character. No, 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 not at all. And and but but I mean, I did actually. The the <laughs> the the woman that played my mom, Joanne Marin, she's a rather well known acting uh, coach out here in in Hollyweird. I was working with her for a little bit before we shot. But that was that was really just to get comfortable with the scenes and and what I would do and some choices that I was making and and just to kind of familiarize myself so that when we got shooting and nothing was foreign it was like really just like i said relax and just be yourself and do your thing and that was valuable because it, it had me you know kind of uh, with the flavor of everything that's how i do things now too i think <clears throat> we all kind of start out a certain way and if it works for you you're going to keep going with it is i just I, I get a flavor of what the uh, the project is about and what my character is going to do. That's the only time you'll hear me use the word character, really, because because after that, it really becomes how I would react if I were that character. If I were that person, how would I react? If I and it, and it can get outrageous. If I was a killer, how would I react? If I was a heroin addict, how would I react? You know, so it's it's all about that to try and get to the truth for me. That's how that's how I do. I always find that movie very interesting in that. It's almost like we've got two protagonists. There's you, there's Val Kilmer. Val ends up on the poster, but really 
you're there in, I would say, almost every scene. There are very few scenes where it's him solo. It's almost always you interacting with someone else. How do you find that balance? Well, I didn't. It's just they. I mean, <laughs> that's that's kind of the way they decided to market it. If you think about it, I mean, if, if, if yeah, you're right. If you look at it, it really is more of a buddy film and has has both of us, uh, you know, in that in that role. I mean, real genius. The kid was I was 14. I was supposed to be 14. I'm the genius. And, you know, yeah, I mean, the, the poster has more to do with marketing the film and where Val was at at the time uh, and me being an unknown. So not a virtual unknown, just an unknown. And coming from out of nowhere, you know, that they're going to push, you know, the person that they think is going to get most of the attention. But yeah, you're right. The film is more of a buddy film. than anything else. With you being there really at the center, I mean, you interact with almost every character that's in the film. How was that, you know, working with John Grise or, or even Val himself? Awesome. I, I, I had a great time working with the people because... I was brand new and wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and, and kind of like just like appreciating everything. And there were times that, that were stressful. I'm not saying that it was all pie in the sky. Val had, I mean, that was his second movie ever. He was, I mean, but he was an accomplished actor before that, but he had done stage, he had done, you know. So he was under a lot of pressure as, as well. You know, it was difficult to work with at times. But he and I got along real well. So what's outside of the work part of it? So I think what ended up happening is what you saw on screen was kind of how we were with each other afterwards. He just kind of went off and did his own thing. We only had the benefit of like working together when you see it, when we're actually working together. Whereas some of the other characters and I would actually hang out at lunch and do stuff uh, afterwards. John Grise is just awesome. Um, he's just such a nice guy. He's such a, a unbelievably good actor. Like he's just a treasure trove of information for someone like me who just walked in and I was brand new. Um, and here he is. And, and, and most of the stuff that I know him from, he did after real genius, not, not before. So I had no idea who he was. And so that was kind of cool to watch him, um, you know, kind of do all these signature roles afterwards, uh, get shorty, you know, and all the, um, all the roles that, that we know him for. And just go, oh, that's John. Oh, my God. He's so good in that. Oh, my God. He's so good in that. And, you know, he did that all afterwards. I'm like, yeah, I was there back when he started. How was Martha Coolidge to work with? Awesome. She was such a wonderful director. So, so giving and generous and allowed me to, she allowed me to make mistakes. She let me, she let me play, uh, which I think is critical as an actor uh, for a movie, but even 10 times more so for someone doing their first movie. You want somebody that, that knows that they can try something and fuck up and they're fine. You know, and that's, that's really what you want to know is that you're going to be okay no matter what. And that allows you to get into that place where you're playing, where you're, where you're listening to the other actor and just going with it and seeing what happens because it's not going to be critical. Uh, later on, I learned that it's not always like that. So, <laughs> you know, when you have a Martha Coolidge around, you need to run interference for you. That's uh, that's great. But you know, sometimes you just got to get it done. Thank God for Martha, because that's the, really the kind of director she was, really generous. I know there's the clip in the trailer with uh, Val and the, the chair and the balloons and all that. That was shot, but not used. Were there a lot of things that you shot that weren't used in the film? No, no, that, that that's the biggest one. I remember being really incensed that it wasn't in the movie. <laughs> I was like, you know how long it took. They had a crane outside the window. There weren't a lot of things. It wasn't really a, a huge budget, so they didn't have. I mean, it was still still studio quasi studio movie, but it was it was um, 
TriStar was the one that shot it. So um, it wasn't like uh, this extravagant budget that they could just like put stuff out there. So there wasn't a lot of waste. They had not really kind of um, leaned to, to go in there, and, and Martha knew exactly what she wanted. The script went through a lot of different iterations before it landed where it was. So, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of stuff that, that I shot that didn't end up in the movie. That one was probably the biggest. The movie was huge for me. You know, I think I was 12, 13 years old the first time I saw it. But I did, you know, obviously, I wasn't looking at box office numbers. Was the movie a big hit? No, it, it was not. It was not. However, uh, that is only part of the story. But the, basically, the rundown is this, is that TriStar was going through, was being bought up by Orion. Anyway, one or the other. There was a merger happening. And the incoming folks did not like the movie. They didn't want the old yes decisions to be, uh, you know, a, a, a ball and chain around their ankle where they, you know, we're not going to have anything to do with that. That's them saying yes. We don't want to have anything to do with it. So they didn't put money into Prince and Ads like they, that they would. They put enough money into justify releasing the movie. Um, because they were contractually obligated to, but it, they did not, um, they didn't push it. They really didn't get behind it. And um, which is a shame because, you know, then it did, as you might imagine, especially coming out because there were, there were two others. One, which was pushed real hard was weird science with, with Kelly LeBrock and, and I think Michael Hall. And they, they, they pushed the heck out of that movie. And the other being my science project. Which nobody saw either. They didn't put a whole lot behind that either. But, but um, you know, so there was this this plate of three films that all kind of had the same thing. And you know, audiences were just like, just went to the one that was advertised the most. And so they, they, they and weird, weird Science is the one that did the best. Where we really excelled is that, remember, I was back in the 80s, 84, 85. So what was happening right around that time? HBO was coming into the thing. So what happened is cable, all of a sudden, it exploded onto cable. Mostly because the deals that they were making back then, HBO basically owned it. They could play it ad nauseum to however many people, however often they want to. And as soon as they got the numbers and they saw how many people were tuning in to watch it, they were like, oh, and they just played the heck out of it. And that's what people did is because they got it for a very, very low price. <laughs> you know, they did. They got this like this movie that like people are like, how did we not see this? And they just went went and that's how it got its cult cult classic title. You know, it was like it just became this cult classic and thanks in part to the time period. When did you realize that it was becoming a cult classic? Right around the same time. <laughs> and because it was all of a sudden after the movie came out, I I got some recognition. Um, got some people stopping me on the street. When it hit HBO, it was a whole new ballgame. Like, it was like I was being stopped every day when it hit cable. And I was, they owned it. So they kept doing it. So every few years, there would be like this real genius marathon where there's like, there's no other marathon. There's just one movie. So it's like, it's like, they just kept playing it over and over again because they could. And, and they kept getting good numbers. So, amen. You know, I was like, that's, that's for cool to me. But, but that's when I realized. Yeah. Did the movie help open any doors for you? Not really. No, it closed more than it opened. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Only because <laughs> there's a few reasons, but but the number one reason I'd say is because the it's the classic Hollywood tale of uh, adolescence trying to make the transition into an adult actor. I did that movie right before I hit puberty, and then I hit it. 
and with a vengeance, I hit it. And when I started getting called in for roles, they were calling me in for Mitch Taylor roles. They were calling in for, for roles that were similar to what I did. And I'd walk in the door. I was two feet taller. One arm was longer than the other. I only had one eyebrow, not two. Um, and people, producers like, what the hell is that thing? Why did they just walk? What is this? That's not what we ordered. It really was that simple. It was just, just, just you know, it was timing. It was timing. I'm not, I, I'm actually not particularly, well, now I'm not exa- exactly upset about it because it, it, it allowed there to be a real line between, you know, what I did back then and what I did, and what I did as, a, as an adult after I, looked, I had the unibrow <laughs> and then looked the way I do. <laughs> so now there's this distinction between my adult career and my teenage career or the, my childhood career, but, but at least there is a line there. People can distinctly see the difference. And, and now I can kind of be seen as my own stuff now. It's not necessarily, you know, looking back towards, towards the past. Although, you know, I mean, people still love the movie. It's definitely something, the biggest thing that I've, well, no, it's not the biggest movie I've done, but it's the uh, movie that I had the most to do in um, that was released, uh, you know, nationwide. How was your experience on Karate Kid 3? It was horrible, not because of the people. Uh, talk about COVID. This is back in the day. Now imagine this. Your co-star shows up with 104 degree feet. Oh boy. That's what happened that day. And I had an 18 hour, 18 hour work day. Now it wasn't scheduled for 18 hours. <laughs> it became 18 hours. Um, and Adelson, John Adelson, God bless him. Uh, he wanted the shot to be straight on and Machio to hit me in the face and I go sliding across the floor. He wanted that all, all in one shot. So no pads back there. Me sliding across the floor. Now they had alligator pads on me. They had the, the, you know, the body pads. I must have hit that. I must have hit that dance floor about 50 times. <laughs> and by the end of it, my, the whole left side of my body, because I kept hitting it the same way. They, they want to match the shot. Also, you know, <laughs> it's the least impactful way I could hit it and slide back. And I, well, at a certain point, your body just is just going to do what it's going to do. So like I, I hit that floor so many times, but I, my, the whole left side of my body was black. It was black, not black and blue. It was black. So between that, the 140 degree fever and then the natural reaction of poor Robin Lively, um, uh, she was really trying to like not be annoyed at the fact that here's a sick guy with his, cause I, my, the whole, point of it when i had to get my get in her face my face in her face there's no way around that and this is pre-covid when you know when everybody's like well whatever show up or you're if you're not dead so i did and that's that yeah so it was that that was a tough thing the next thing i really remember you from was uh your role in apollo 13 how was that best experience ever there are certain directors and certain movies popcorn movies that just it's that's Hollywood filmmaking. That's it's at its best. Everybody on that cast was an experienced and talented actor. Now, I don't care what size role they had. They were just just like the people that you watch every day and that you just like, oh, my God, admire every day. So the whole cast was like that. People just sitting behind me that I had no idea were working on it. You know, Joe Spano was back there. I'm like, what? I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, and 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 he's, you know, because there were so many actors that wanted on this thing. And Ron Howard, the way he works, he's he was talking about generous directors. 
you know, I mean, he's well known for being this way and, 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 um, not just working with the same people over and over again, but, but also for, um, being an actor's director. And he just lets people run. He hires people that are fantastic and then just lets them go and says, here's the project. Here's your part. Here's your role. Go. He'll, before he tells you anything, he will wait for you to tell him what you see for the, for the shot, for your shot. For every shot, like how do you see this running? Or he'll, or if there's a bunch of people, are, how do you, guys, how are you guys playing this? What do you think you're? What do you think you'll be? Where do you think you'll be? And then after you've shown him, then he will go okay. And usually he'll just, if it's the right mix, which it really was on that movie, um, he'll just you he turn to the, the dean, the, the the DP, and just went okay. And he sets the camera. That's it. That's the, you know, that's the whole thing. Now, granted, there was rehearsal. We, we, we had two weeks of ground school. So we all knew our station. We knew what we were doing. And he also knows that he's got a bunch of professional actors that have nothing to do but sit there and talk and think about their characters. So he uses that pool of creativity. And that's what he's good at. That's why he's so good because he just take, he's just an, an unabashed, thief <laughs> of all these good ideas and he will just pare down the ones that work for the movie uh or the or whatever it is the shot and and let the rest go but he's gonna he's gonna listen to all the golden nuggets that have been come up with by the people that he cast and thank god for for directors like him because he's just like he makes everybody feel like they're part of a team and and we ended up winning best cast so i mean whatever he's doing you know had it been a little bit of a strange movie because it's so separated as far as you've got Hanks and Bacon and Paxton, and then you've got the whole ground crew. I mean, are they pumping in audio that they'd recorded already, or is it some PA shouting out lines and you're reacting to that? It was a mixture of the two. For Mission Control, it was a mixture of the two because a lot of the stuff uh, with Hanks and Paxton and, uh, and Bacon were not done yet. I actually was the, <laughs> I ended up being the voice of most of the mission control stuff off camera when they were, when they were shooting that stuff. Usually when they're talking to um, whoever they're talking to, uh, mostly Brett Cullen, I think is, uh, was his station, but I ended up doing the dialogue uh, for most of it. It started out with me and like two others, three other people. And then they just asked me to finish it out. Why? I don't know. I was just appreciating and staying on. Um, so we were actually feeding the stuff to them with like, well, they were doing it. So we, they didn't have the audio from, from there. I mean, uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, uh, one of them, Hanks, Bacon or Paxton would come in and they, they do it. But a lot of times it was the VA, you know, uh, when it came over the, uh, over the thing, you know, it's like, uh, okay, Houston, we're going to need the numbers. We need to, you know, whatever. And we would hear that over the, over the radio. So you got to be Tom Hanks. No, that was a lot of fun. Are you kidding? I'm, um, yeah, no, I, I had a great time because I was on a closed loop with me and Ron Howard and the script supervisor and whoever was in the, the capsule, um, whoever I was talking to in the capsule. So that that was all the off camera stuff. I did. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Your fellow actors must have really appreciated that having you as a trained actor being able to deliver those lines. So they've got something better to react to than that PA just shouting out stuff. That was the idea. They wanted somebody that was going to give them the timing that that they ultimately are going to want on the screen you know, so that uh, they can feed off of it so they can get immersed in it, you know, and it's not something where it's like, you know, someone's reading stoically off the page. They wanted, they wanted an active partner in there. And, and I was more than happy to do it. Are you kidding? You know, what, what, a, what an opportunity. 
what have been some of your other favorite roles to do over the years? I've been really digging uh, lately. I've been uh, like, I did a bad guys. <laughs> All of a sudden I, I, I got cast in a couple of things where I was just not a nice dude. Um, one called Reaper um, with Danny Trejo. Yeah. And uh, you know, I get burned up by the Reaper literally burned they have like char like all the makeup effects and the stuff i just like it i think i just like being a jerk well I've, I've spoken to other people that have played villain roles and yeah they just love it they just it gives them so much freedom yeah because you can do what you can do stuff you are praised for doing things that you would normally go to jail how did covid affect your schedule and, and what you're working on weird weird it just it didn't take it out for me completely as a matter of fact i probably i think i've been working more through COVID. And that's just because I did a series. I, I had just this, this lineup of, of projects that came in right as COVID began that just kept me busy through it without having to like look for new stuff. Like, like, like they came, I mean, they came up in the moment, but there was um, a movie that just came out about three weeks ago called 13 minutes, uh, which was finished at the end of 2019. That was right when it was coming up. Then I did uh, a series uh, called Bring on the Dancing Horses with uh, Kate Bosworth and uh, Michael Polis directed it. And um, John Marcera is my partner in it. And so we did that. I did that in 10 episodes of that. So that's going to be coming. I was going to Sundance, actually. And then uh, the new one is um, Ask Me to Dance, uh, directed and starring uh, Tom Malloy. That looks fantastic. And so it's like, I, I have been working. I've been working. Now, the COVID thing really kind of messed up. <laughs> it kind of took a lot of fun out of it. You know, we were, for the series, we were tested every two days. Everyone. And still, four people got it. And that was, that was in Montana. That was like, we were, we were not in a, in a high density population. We were uh, in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and we still had it come in there. So yeah, it, it became a different world and, 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 more scary and more angry world, uh, I think is the, the only way I can describe it because you have people that are, you know, just people treat each other differently. Now they, they really do. They treat each other like they're lepers and there's, there's a, um, an instant distrust and it's, it's kind of sad. It's kind of sad. Um, you know, I think we're all trying to figure out what our new normal is and, and, um, I'm trying to keep it in perspective because Corona, even though it's deadly and I'm not one of those deniers that says it's not, you know, it's, it, this is, this is a major problem for all of, for all of us. It's a world changing problem. Don't get me wrong when I say this, but it's, it's, it's Corona. This has been around for a long time. We know what this bug is. It's nastier because it keeps mutating and keeps doing that. But you know, when people say we're going to have to go in every year and get boosters and whatever, don't freak out about it. That's you, you do that with the flu. Which is also Corona. It's the, you know, but this is all the same bug. It would be really nice to get it to stop mutating. Let's try to do that. But, you know, it's something that we're all going to have to live with. And, and, um, I think the, the net effect, um, socially has been really sad for me, you know, but not, not so much work wise. That's why, you know, and lucky, you know, knock on. So what's next for you? Well, next, like I said, um, we're going to Sundance, so um, we're going to be pushing the series. If it has a second season, then that's what's next. But I don't know. I don't know beyond that. Uh, yeah, auditioning and and just uh, scrounging for the next job is always is always going to be an actor's uh, cross to bear. But, uh, but but as far as that, I'm just focusing on the series and the movie coming out. Like I said, 13 minutes is already out and doing pretty well. 
Um, so I'm just kind of, uh, you know, seeing what happens next and looking for the next project. Mr. Jarrett, thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much. Last but not least, we are going to hear from Laszlo, the one and only John Grise. I know we've talked twice before, and the first time we talked, we talked all about joysticks and your wonderful turn as King Vidiot. And then after that, we talked about TerrorVision, and we talked about your role as OD. And oddly enough, we didn't talk about the role that was released right in the middle, the one that I think, at least for me growing up, I was just like, oh, it's that guy, which was real genius. Laszlo Hollyfeld. That was an amazing experience. That was a life-changing experience for me throughout my career, not just my career as a professional actor, but my career as a student and going through whatever I went through and decisions I made. There are a few that are, are truly like a crossroad, and, and this, is, this is one of the most profound real genius, without question. They contacted my agent at the time and said, we want him to read for Kent. They wanted me to read for the part that uh, Robert Prescott so beautifully played, you know, because I guess a lot of people saw me as a bad guy or, you know, because in the script, Robert Prescott's interpretation was just beautiful. You know, that's all him. He was written a little more like kind of like what would have been kind of a almost like a, a smarmy bad guy, smart Alec, maybe cliche, jockish. What Robert Prescott brought to that role was you know, that's one of the reasons that, that that movie is so good is because of the way he played that character. You know, when I read it, I just was like, I don't relate to this guy. I relate to Laszlo. And in the original screenplay, Laszlo was like 40 years old. And, uh, you know, I was 25 or 26. And they were like, you know, you're too old to be Laszlo. I said, why can't Laszlo have graduated when he was 18? So I just said, well, I, I want to read for Laszlo. And so my Agent called back and asked the casting director and said, John doesn't want to read for Ken. He wants to read for Laszlo. And they said, yeah, sure. Let him read for Laszlo. And so I came in and I pretty much figured out who he was immediately. The minute I read the screenplay, I just, I immediately was connected to that character. And they were reading a lot of people that I knew. It turns out that they were reading people that were close to my age, if not even younger. So I was right. Make that push, you know kind of in that cliche way that I felt Kent was written. I felt Laszlo was written kind of as like the brainiac, the guy that's always really smart and kind of, and I didn't see him that way at all. I saw him totally wounded. And, you know, if a guy's living, he's hiding away. He's too smart. He's too smart. And he knows, he knows, he knows everything in the world that he wouldn't dare tell you because it would only ruin your life to hear it. You know, so it's almost like he it's almost as if Laszlo felt like the world was coming to an end and he and he was the only guy who knew it. That's kind of how I pictured him, you know, so he decided to, you know, extract himself from society. And, you know, and, well, anyway, so I, I came in and I read. They thought it was interesting. They brought me back again. They liked it. They brought me back again. And I'd heard that Martha Coolidge, she was married to a guy who was a computer scientist at the time, who was not an actor. But at one point, she even thought about giving him the role. And apparently, Brian Grazer was like, no, that's not going to happen. Let's keep reading people. And we, and Brian Grazer was kind of became my champion. He was like, no, I, I like this guy. I like what he's doing. Bring, let's bring him back. 
which was interesting for me because like years later, Martha Coolidge and I spoke about it and she was like, no, 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 I was always into you. But I do remember distinctly that, that, that she kept bringing me back. I felt like she kept bringing me back because she was testing me against other people because she wasn't certain. And apparently, you know, because Brian Grazer in no uncertain terms came up to me and said, you were my pick from the get go. I pushed for you all the way without saying she didn't want you as much as I did. I kind of felt like that was the case because I think when Martha Coolidge and I showed the movie at USC at, for the 30 year uh, anniversary of the film and people were asking me questions, I said, yeah, I, I think I went in four or five times. She's like, no, you didn't. I was like, oh yes, I did. You don't remember. You kept bringing me back. You kept felt like I felt like, felt like I was like, in a fight for the, you know, the Olympic, the boxing, I'm not going to crumble. I'm not going to crumble. And it's funny because originally the, the character of Hollyfeld was named Hopsfield after a professor from Caltech. Hopsfield did not sign off on his name, didn't want them to use his name. So then they came up with the name Davendorf. And I said to the writers, first off, I'd worked with the writers before on another show that they did. And they used that character name in that other show and then the character got cut out. So it's like almost it was like it was like two like, you know, Neil, I guess Neil is real. But they had like a, you know, it was like they had their like list of names that they were always going to use in different projects. So they used this name Davendorf. And I said, Davendorf sounds like he's a big, heavy dude who walks around in cement shoes. It, he needs to be light. Hopsfield gives you this sense of like. Like, uh, you know, he, he, you wouldn't even hear him walking towards you if he were, if he were coming. You know, Davendorf just sounds like, like the Frankenstein monster to me. Using my analogy of boxing, I remember Evander Holyfield, Holyfield, Holyfield won the gold and in, in the 84 Olympics. And I said, what about Holyfield? What about Laszlo Holyfield? And they thought that that might be a problem because of field and they just changed it to Feld. And that was it. That's how he became Lazo Hollyfeld. That's how it spoke to me. That's all I ever wanted him to be. When he comes out, he only comes out to explain that these guys don't understand what they're doing. He's trying to explain to them. He's trying to make them see that what they're doing is going to have human repercussions. There's going to be people dying from it. You know, the interesting thing about real genius is real genius in actuality was the last anti war film in the carryover from the 60s and the 70s. It was the last one. If you really think about it, every film after that, like Red Dawn, and there are all these, there are all these, all of a sudden, I remember taking note of it when I was very young, thinking all the movies now are really pro-fighting and pro-war. All of a sudden, there was like a gear change, and, and, and Real Genius was pretty much the last, I felt, felt like it was the last of the Vietnam War era anti-war films. It, it was was the, the end. That was the last one. I never really thought of that, but yeah, I grew up on things like Miracle Mile and War Games and Real Genius, and yeah, they all have a very anti-war message to them. It was like that, and and Miracle Mile. But after that, it just there was like a shift, and maybe that was because it was our. You know, we must remember that Reagan became president in eighty really 81. And then by, by the second term, we were 
we were a different country. It's amazing how, but it is the way it is. We, we, we reflected a whole different ideology in this country. Things changed a lot. And, um, I noticed that, you know, shows on TV like Dynasty and Knott's Landing and, and Dallas were all about rich people and, and, you know, kind of cutthroat business practices and all, all is fair and, and business, love and war, you know? And, uh, I felt like Real Genius kind of really was an end to the chapter just before that whole change. And probably why it wasn't, even though it was critically hailed, it was not a very popular movie in the movie. Yes. It didn't do really well. It had its life with, you know, video rentals and, and, you know, cable. Gabe Jarrett told me uh, that it was too many science movies all at the same time between Weird Science, My Science Project, and Real Genius. Yeah. Well, the sad thing is, is that when they, when they came out and they were reviewed, I mean, obviously, My Science Project was completely lambasted, and then and then Weird Science, you know, was probably the most popular of the three, but it was because of of you know, it was a, a teen sexual angst film. You know what I mean? It was about about making it was like Pygmalion in a movie. It had that kind of, you know, angsty, you know, pimple faced teen thing. Whereas Real Genius was what was kind of, I think, a much, much higher minded and certainly more, you know, a longer lasting, effective voice, you know, than those other films. You're not necessarily in the movie a ton, but you cast a long shadow over the rest of it, especially because you're such a mystery. Yeah, no, I, I know. It was fun that way. It was really fun. And I, I thought the concept of, of Laszlo was, was really, uh, really well constructed in, in the script. The script was actually a good script. It was well written. It was really well written. And, and yeah, but I, lo- I loved playing him. Yeah. How much of the hair was yours? It was all mine up on top and around the sides. And it was my idea that Laszlo should have long hair because I went to Caltech when I was doing research, right when I first got the role. And I noticed a lot of the guys in the, in the high energy physics, a lot of them had long hair. And that to me was also part of what I felt like. I, again, I felt like it was an anti-war film. And I think that Laszlo was preeminent in the message of anti-war in that movie, because it's actually Laszlo that wakes Chris Knight up to realize what he's doing, how by by being, you know, by getting his basically jumping through the hoops that uh, at, what's his name? Was it Hathaway was trying to get get him to jump through the hoops that he was part of the dog and pony show that was much, much bigger and more dangerous than than he even knows. And it's kind of, and, and that to me was also true. I mean, I think that was like, that's a, a lot of young people get involved in trying to solve a problem and then waking up and realizing, I mean, even Oppenheimer himself said, what have I done? I just wanted to solve the problem. I, I didn't want to create a bomb, you know, so that, that, that kind of thing rang true to me. And, and I was aware of those things back then, you know, I used to go to, you know, I'd go listen to, you know, Daniel Sheehan from the Christic Institute and Dr. Helen Caldecott. I would go to these rallies and listen to these people talk. So for me, you know, at that young age and trying to be really aware and conscientious and, you know, I was very much against what Reagan was doing with the Contras. And I, I, you know, I just was like, I, I saw, I saw something that in this character that spoke so true to me and I, and in the piece. And, and I think that, that, that was, uh, you know, that was so important to me. 
Well, you mentioned that you went to Caltech and were doing some research. I'm curious what that was like. It was great. Most of the people that I was seeing at Caltech were were still kind of, they still seemed to have the appurtenances of the previous decade. And so a lot of them still had long hair and beards. And, and so when I went back and saw Martha, I said, I want Laszlo. I had long hair. My hair was only just down to the back of my neck. I just wanted to make it longer. So I, the hair piece I got was literally just around the lower crown of my head. And, uh, you know, cause I had, I hadn't lost my hair yet. I was only beginning to lose my hair at that point. I think you wear just a few outfits in the film and all those layers kind of seem like armor to me, you know, having the the shirt buttoned all the way up to the top, having the coat over the shirt, a little bit of a clash between those two to show that you don't really have the fashion sense. It really speaks to the character. Yeah. I mean, I think that that was really, you know, credit to the wardrobe department. The jacket, interestingly enough, I brought back from Paris. I went to Paris just before I got this job for Christmas. You know, in 83, because this film, we started filming in like February of 84. And I I bought this this beautiful blazer in a secondhand, you know, clothing store for like, you know, I don't know, 10 francs or something like that. And and I loved it. And so I brought that in and the wardrobe person was like, yes, perfect. Just wear this. And 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 part of what it what it was, was, yeah, exactly. Protection. Also, because of the cold, I wanted the steam tunnels, even though they were called the steam tunnels. I thought that they would get. In my mind, I always thought, you know, yes, the pipes might be carrying steam, but the floors are wet. You know, I always thought that it was until I saw the design. So, you know, my wardrobe preceded my, you know, preceded being in the, the sets, you know. So I didn't see his sets until I'd already had my wardrobe set up and I just kind of stayed stayed with it. But it's good of you to notice that because I feel like there was a lot of thought that went into it. And I, I'm kind of, you know, like, you know, as much as I... I you know, using joysticks as a as a kind of a preamble to doing Laszlo. What what joysticks represented to me was, you know, the movie was. I mean, yes, nostalgically now, people a lot of people like it, and and they. But I, for me, it was an abject failure, and I was scared to death to have anybody see it. But now, having seen it since so many years, you know, they did a retrospective of, at the Alamo Draft House in Texas, and they invited me and Graydon Clark and a couple other people, and and what I was pleased about was like even when i'm kind of way way in the background and off camera i was totally in the character i was always like totally going for it and i wanted to bring that same focus to laszlo so i was trying to be involved in every step of the way with with who he was i mean even to the point that when we were shooting i had a walkman and the walkman had a um i got a tape and in my <laughs> in my tape i recorded you know on my boom box you know you could put a tape in on the boom box and just record well i would find this radio static and i would just record for the whole tape just like like white noise you know so a lot of times i would sit on set and i didn't want to listen to music because i was afraid that it was going to influence me one way or another but i would put on <laughs> the white noise but also because i i didn't want anybody to talk to me right like they, you know, I just like if you ha if you have the headphones on, nobody's going to come over and interrupt you, especially Val, because Val, Val, as much as I think he was really loved Laszlo and Val and I became lifelong friends from that time. 
but he would he would see dailies every day and i wouldn't go watch dailies i didn't want to see the day i didn't want to know i just wanted to feel like i was in the zone and i didn't want to be aware because if i looked up and i saw something i didn't like then i might change my performance in a way that would actually hurt the performance because i was being vain or some weird thing like that you know but um so i he would walk by me every morning. Like I'd walk in and he'd, he'd been watching dailies all night. He'd walk by and he'd go, you know, as he walks by, he'd go, you're a star, you know, like say things like that. And I know he was trying to be encouraging and really positive, but at the same time, it, you know, it's like a, it's like a pitcher throwing a no hitter and somebody coming up to you saying, Hey, you're throwing a no hitter. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I just did, I'm too superstitious about that. So I, I did, I, I made all these tapes of static and walked around with my with my uh, my walkman and just listened to loud white noise yes i was going to ask you if you segregated yourself from the cast because you are that mystery man but sounds like you were doing that all the time i'm not one of these people that likes to sit in his room and there was a trailer or a honey wagon or whatever I never like to do that i like to watch what's being done i do this a lot on airplanes like i won't listen to the movie i'll watch the movie i'll watch movies on planes with with no sound or else i'll you know put the headphones in so i don't really hear if anybody's talking around me but usually you can't really hear anybody in an airplane it's just the plane the plane you hear but i like to watch movies that way because i get to see you can really start to take apart the way the film is made and i'm actually i can usually sit there and snap and and snap their their rhythm for their cutting you know i'll just sit there and here it comes, here it comes. Yep, yep. And I'll be surprised. Like, I'll do 25 in a row right on their cut. Like, oh, here it comes. Wait, wait, there it is. Right. Like, and so, so uh, that was always the thing that I did. I wanted to watch them making the film, but I didn't want to hear the dialogue. And I didn't, I just wanted to see the behavior, you know? So to me, that was Laszlo at, at his core. Yeah, watching films without any sound does definitely help when it comes to the editing rhythms. It also helps for me to look at the outfits because there's so many times I'm focused on the faces rather than the clothes. So even just looking at stills of you in Real Genius and like, I forgot about that amazing Hawaiian shirt that you wear at the end. Again, with those long sleeves, like you're still protecting yourself, though you're trying to be a party animal at this point. Yeah, I mean, it was the, you know that was my my homage to all my surfing buddies because you know I used to I mean I do, still do but I was you know at fifteen to like twenty I was a surfer and then I stopped because I or even I should say younger than twenty at like eighteen because I went to New York and studied acting there, there was no surfing in New York you know but um, at least during the winter you know and and so uh, so I stopped it for a long time but then when I got back out to L A and I got this movie I I went back out to the beach and I saw a bunch of my old friends. So I just thought that would be funny that the long sleeve underneath it was their idea for the Hawaiian shirt, but I just wanted to wear the sleeves underneath. And again, because, you know, he's not, I mean, it was supposed, it wasn't supposed to be hip. It was supposed to be kind of bad taste, but you know, kind of. God, when you show up in that Winnebago and I mean, you're the big winner of the whole movie. That was a lovely tag for that to happen, you know, and, um, and, and it was not, it was just, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. The house, the popcorn house that they built was crazy. That was crazy because that house they built for the movie, you know, it was on an I-beam and they, so that the house could split open and blow out all this popcorn, you know, that was kind of like the really big ticket item 
the real fascinating part of doing this film, I loved working with Vilmos Zygmunt, you know, because he's an amazing cinematographer. And this is very unlike a film that he would normally do. I mean, you know, he he did Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He did Deer Hunter. I mean, this is this is not a this is not a Vilmos Zygmunt style film, but something, you know, drew him into the film. And I will tell you that an interesting story. The first time I shot my big scene where I speak, where I come in and I catch them studying and I'm carrying the box and I tell them, which is kind of like that was like the first scene I shot. And that scene went so well. And and that as I was walking out, it was on a Friday night. I'll never forget. I was walking out into the stage to go drive home. And Vilmo Sigmund was walking with me. And he said, you know, he had this kind of soft voice like this. And he says, you know, I really think after this scene, I think that scene was so good. I, I think this is going to be a really good movie. You know, like he all of a sudden kind of, I feel like, and this was like the end of the, the first week, I think. And he was like, I think he all of a sudden was on board with the movie. And I, I felt like we had a connection right then because he was like, I really like your character. And I, I think that we are going, this is going to be a really good movie, you know? And I was such, you know, like that night I went home and I was walking on air, you know, because I got, I got validation from a guy that I considered to be the best in the business at the time. And he was the best, you know? And, and one of the, um, the second ADs walked up to me and he goes, man, that scene was amazing. He goes, you just better hope nobody fucks it up in the, excuse my French, but fucks it up in the, in the lab. And sure enough, I got there on Monday morning and they were, they looked at me like, you won't believe what happened. I said, shut up. I thought they were doing it on purpose. Come on. And they said, nope, got to redo the scene. Got to redo everything from that day. So that day when we shot that, there were two scenes, two main scenes that were shot that day. And the other one was the car, you know, Rock Kent's car in the room. That was shot the same day. So they had to reshoot all of that. They had to reshoot all of it. Between you and me and the phone company, Val was so enamored with my character in the scene that they, that even again, they had to, after went to Daly's, Martha was like, I think you're a little too overwhelmed by him. You can't be as overwhelmed by him as we will be, the audience. And so they they reshot his whole kind of like, well, I didn't get you anything. Like, he, you know, they kind of made him a little less like, you know, the guy, you know, which I think was a really good choice. You know, I meant a really good choice that he'd be kind of his character and and still be kind of like, wow, you're you're kind of a weirdo, but cool, man. You know what I mean? Like, I thought that was definitely the right way to to go with that, you know. I'm so glad to hear that you and Val Kilmer became friends on this and still remain friends. That's amazing. Even though he took credit for it himself, I, I directed his screen test for the doors, you know. Yeah, we we've done quite a bit together. We we my brother and I helped him out for full metal jacket and you know, and he helps me out too. The guy's been one of these amazing things. I remember when I you know, friendships and forces in my life because I remember I was in New York City and I was I was starving, you know. I was it was like probably I don't know eighty seven. I decided to go back to New York and do some school. I was going taking a summer film class at NYU, sight and sound class, and I was also back doing some some acting studying, you know. And um, and Val was in town and. You know, I was living in a little cold water apartment on Avenue B and, you know, in Alphabet City and lower Manhattan. And 
and there was this is when wasn't all gentrified like it is now it was like you know it was a a lot of squatters and it was a lot of you know a lot of rough and tumble stuff going on but i was broke i remember my agents had left me a message my agents in new york and said hey you're up for a tv show and they they want you to come over and read at 11 a.m you know of course i got the message at like 1 p.m i was like what idiots why wouldn't they you know, because there was no cell phone. You just have it on your voicemail, your message machine. And I was like, I, and I called my agents back and they're like, oh, it's probably too late now. Because it was like, I got the message at like, oh, no, it was later. It was like 2.30 when I got it. And I was like, who has ever heard of like reading on the same day? And, and Val was standing there with me. He goes, are you really going to listen to what they're telling you? He goes, don't listen to them. Do you know where the appointment is? I was like, yeah. It's, he goes, he hailed a cab right down the street. He goes, come on. I said, I haven't even read it yet. He goes, we'll work on it on the way. So we worked on it on the way, got to the place at four o'clock in the afternoon. I walked in. There was like nobody in the waiting room. I said, hey, I got the message way too late. And they said, well, they're all still in there. We're going to send you in. I went and I, I went and I read and I got the job. It was a TV show. And it was just an episode of a TV show, but it was money that I desperately needed. And it was, it was a lesson from Val. It was like, you want it? You go get it. Because they didn't want him for the doors. You know, they, they, they filmed him all through New York City for Goodfellas, because at the time it was called Why, The Wise Guys. He was up for the Ray Liotta part. And we we made a film in black and white and actually sent it sound striped in black and white film, not on video, to Martin Scorsese. And he had this, he had to get a screening room and watch it. <laughs> so we've done a lot together. We, you know, I'm just sorry now that he's having the health issues he's having. You know, it's it's really really tough it's really really tough and he's just the most the most one of the most resilient one of the most amazing incredible people i know he's as unique as he you could possibly imagine and i'll i'll never forget and i told him when i was working with gene hackman on get shorty somehow val's performance in tombstone came up and gene hack gene hackman was like i don't know why he goes i don't know look i don't know why he didn't get a nomination let alone win for best supporting actor, because that was hands down the best performance in the movie. Number one end of the year in that category to hear Gene Hackman say that I got, I walked off that set, called Val right away and said, I just want you to know what Gene Hackman just said about you. And he was, he was like, Oh yeah, thanks John. But, but beautiful high praise, you know, how was Martha Coolidge to work with? She really got to the point of the movie, you know, it's something that I remember like when I kind of had a little tete-a-tete with her when we got to the scene where Laszlo comes in and it's like a biker bar, you know, and people are like fighting and, you know, stuff like that. And he walks in and they're eating their food and Laszlo drops the bomb on them. And I always thought that, you know, what it really should be is it should look like the milk bar in, <laughs> in uh, Clogger Corns, you know, I thought it should be really, really weird like really strange, like a weird place, you know, because we're all, it's this campus of all these freaking geniuses and crazy, wild, smart people. And I thought the last place in the world it should be is a place like that. I thought it should be really, and she was like, okay, so tell me what do you think, what would make you happy? I said, look, if there were a wall of masks and those masks were actually actual faces poking through the wall and all just like moving their mouths and them, you know, like, so that like, and all each like pastel so the walls let's say painted yellow and the faces are like all these like they look almost like easter eggs you know just like and she, she laughed so hard. 
she laughed so hard and she was like, I'm not going to, she was very kind. She was like, I'm not going to tell you that it's a bad idea, but it's not right for this movie. And, uh, you know, but I was like, how, how could you possibly just make it a dumb old biker bar? What are we doing here? Is this roadhouse or what? You know, and uh, she was, she totally. And she, but at the same time, she understood the contrast of putting these people in that environment, how actually the effect is, is that's rendered is it's understandable how an audience will see it. And so it worked. It worked ultimately. When I saw it in the screening, I was like, I walked up to her and I was like, you were right. Yeah, it worked. It worked because it was also really accessible to the general public. You know, I mean, she she understood that. I I was like, like, let's make it weirder. Let's make it as weird as we can. I don't think that was the right choice. I mean, obviously, if you're, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, you know, Brian Grazer wants to sell tickets. He doesn't want to get huge critical accolades, even though the film did anyway. We said that the film didn't really do that well, and it wasn't until HBO and VHS that it really started to pick up. When Block did you know? video and cable, whether it was HBO or Showtime or wherever it ended up. I don't re- remember where. And also regular television. I mean, it, for a while it was in the, it was in this this cycle. You know, it would pop up on you know different channels. You know, and that's where the film all of a sudden found a second life. When did you realize that it had that newfound life? There was a period of time where, oh my God, Roswell, you know, people would start calling out to me, you know, when it was, and, and I knew that, and I'd known that it was on cable. So I was like, well, people must be watching, you know, and then, and then, it, and then it started to get shown in better, better time slot. You know, you can always tell if a film is, is uh, doing well. And I mean, at least in the old days of cable, in the early days of cable, like if, you know, they might put it out there at 11 o'clock at night or something or three in the afternoon. And then all of a sudden, you know, after a couple of, you know, showing, you know what I mean? Like the cycles of showing it at those times. And all of a sudden, then it starts to show up at like 7 PM or 8 PM before they were doing a lot of uh, programming of their own. Uh, Then all of a sudden you're, you're starting to see it on holidays or, you know, days where they know people are going to watch TV. Then, then I, I was aware. It's funny you turned me on to Dream Corp LLC, and people have said, you know, Dr. Roberts is kind of a the next evolution of Laszlo. I always saw Brutes from The Pretender kind of having that Laszlo vibe as well. I mean, just because people have said that to me, I personally never thought there was any correlation between Dr. Roberts and Laszlo. I mean, Dr. Roberts is, an, is a totally ambitious narcissist, you know? You know, I mean, he really is, even though he's soft spoken and he's all the other stuff. He he's he's only trying to figure out what's the next move to keep doing what he's doing, you know, and he'll by hook or by crook. Yeah. And and to me, I don't know. To me, Boots was like more like, you know, uh, I don't know. He was like, uh, like, what's his name? And in, in, in Mayberry RFD was <laughs> like, you know, Don Knotts. Oh, Don Knotts. Yes, I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> That's how in my mind, I always saw him like, you know, Bruce was a, one of those characters that, I don't know, like whenever I see that character on a TV show, I know that's the guy that's doing the really, really heavy lifting because invariably they're the guy who is bringing comedic relief, but on top of which they're also, they're kind of rehashing the story. They're, you know, they're always doing the exposition. They got to talk about exposition as if it's dramatic. They got to dramatize or make funny 
exposition. That, and, that, and that exposition is, you know, in any TV show, because invariably, at least, you know, on the big three networks, there's, there's always some guy telling what we've already seen over and over again, you know. Um, it's just kind of the weird, the weird way that they craft it for those networks, you know. And I, I would always say, everybody's just seen this. Why am I repeating this? Why is this over? So, why am I doing the redundant? You know, let's, let's just like, let's stay in the moment. And they were like, well, we won't really, we don't really know what to have Bruce say in the scene. So we're just going to have him say, you know, so, you know, but it, it, it does become, it's a task. It becomes more of a task. You know, it's not as, certainly not as, it's a challenge, but it's not as fun as, you know, doing the other kind of stuff. Well, I have to thank you for turning me on to Dream Corp because it is fucking fantastic. Isn't that a great show? It's like my favorite show I've ever done. There's no question. It's the favorite show I have ever done. And I love that show and fuck Adult Swim for not bringing them back. But, you know, they sold and, you know, they, they want to do cartoons and fart jokes. Well, there they go. There it goes. But this is not that this is not that show. And maybe it was a little bit above their mindset. But I'm just I'm so sorry that nobody else has picked it up because it's I just think the show's kind of perfect. It really is. What a cast, too. My God. So good. And every time there's a guest that comes on, one better than the next. They're all so good, you know. And it's, and it's a thankless job for the guest stars. I mean, because if the chair, the chair that they all have to sit in is brutal, is terrible. It's a painful experience to be in that chair. So they get to do a lot of fun, really great stuff, but then they got to get in the chair for the dream sequences and the chairs and nightmare. I mean, like Craig Robinson, they weren't going to put him in that chair. He was like, I'm not going to sit in that chair. You know, when he was on the show, they brought in a little like lawn chair, like from the sixties, you know, and I had him sit in that, but, but uh, yeah, it's, 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 but it's, it's some of the hardest work I've ever done. No question. You know, because when we filmed that show, we film each episode. There are only three days of filming. So invariably it's like 15, sometimes 16 hour days. And, and I guess being the guy who's got to talk pretty much more than everybody else in the show during that little time while we're making it, I would have, I would work, I'd get there probably before everybody else. And I'd work till everybody else. I mean, after everybody else. And then I would come home and fall asleep with my face and my food as I'm trying to learn the next day's lines. I mean, pretty much like that. But at the same time, absolutely invigorating. You know, every time I'd show up on the set, I didn't care how tired I was. I didn't care. I just loved it. It was like, let's grind this out. Let's work as hard as we can. And Danny Stetson, who is the creator and director of every episode, and he basically writes every episode. I mean, he he has a core of writers and they're all good. But, you know, he's got the final word. Yeah, he's brilliant. He's brilliant. How were you doing all the, the rotoscoping stuff? Was that just against the green screen? Did you have to wear like the dots on your face or anything? No, no, because it's rotoscope. So we, we never, we never green screen. There was no green screen. Basically, you know, they, they would just animate people right out. There'd be guys standing right there with fans on us. Like they'd be in the shot. They would just animate over everybody and then just color us in, you know? So yeah, it was just like, we, I know. And, and look, rotoscope is, the animation on that show. And I remember when we went and I, we went to Atlanta to talk to the people at Adult Swim after we finished the first season. And the first season was only six episodes, right? And it was kind of like, you know, let's test this out and see, you know, probationary type thing. And I remember going down there and saying, you know what, you guys, if you don't even pick the show up, this show is the animation and the concept of the show to me is so special. 
I could easily see the show ending up in a museum somewhere, you know, because it's just the animation itself is just is so incredible. There's not as much animation in season three because the network wanted the show to air quicker. And then, of course, you know, they, they didn't they didn't air it actually when they said they were going to the last they, just, they didn't treat the show well. They didn't promote the show. They, they really did a disservice to the quality of the show, which is which is the saddest part, you know. But but, you know, I mean, it's just it is, networks do whatever networks do. And, you know, and my attitude is I'll call it the way I see it. I work that hard. You want me to come kiss the ring? I'm not going to kiss the ring. I'm kidding. Damn. I mean, if you if that's the way you run your business, that you're going to put out that kind of money and then you're not going to promote it. I don't know. Who, I can use that as, as a as a definition of insanity. But, you know, but anyway, the network sold and now it's Warner Brothers. And so who knows? So, I, you know, it would I would love to see it, it get redone. I would love to come back to it. Really would. Who knows? Well, of course, you know, maybe some of these people from HBO. I'll talk to them. You know, when I go do the second White Lotus, I look, I mean, I'm, this is, I'm in my second bout of Corona. I mean, I think I'm bulletproof at this point. I mean, I barely feel any effect whatsoever. So I think I'm between the shots and everything else, you know, I think I'm pretty good. You asked me one question. And I just want to kind of finish off by saying, you know, about this film, Real Genius. Before this film, I worked also as a, uh, as a framer for houses. I was working in construction. I was, I was, and and occasionally I get a job as an actor, you know, I'd do like thing here or there, but I'd always go back and get and do the building thing or the, you know, I, I worked for three different contractors doing, one of them had me digging ditches. One of them had me building stuff. The other guy had me doing drywall. It was just whatever I, you know, could do. And um, after Real Genius, I never went back to that work again. I never had to. It changed, it changed the trajectory of my my and you know look i've had lots of ups and downs i quit some a few times i quit before i got napoleon dynamite i spent you know 10 months writing that was a sea change for me without question this film and it's one that i hold very dear and i'm and i'm proud of the movie itself i'm proud of what the movie has to say and the way that the movie says it you know I'm so glad that that movie came into your life and that you gave such a performance. I mean, it, it means a lot for a lot of other people, too. I mean, that we're still talking about it all these decades later. It's kind of crazy, right? It's nice. I mean, I, I appreciate it. Thanks for bringing it up because uh, I'll talk about that really anytime, anywhere. Anybody wants to. I remember a lot of it. You know, when you have those events in your life where things are so different, you know, like I remember we were shooting at Zoetrope Studios, you know, which was, you know, Francis Ford Coppola's studios. And in the next stage, Jessica Lange was, was, uh, shooting, uh, crazy. You know, the movie crazy, the, uh, Patsy Klein. She was, sh- and so right outside the door of our stage was her trailer. And it was a beautiful old Airstream trailer. And I would go out there and I would just kind of look at the trailer. And then one day her boyfriend came out and he, we would talk, you know, so it seemed like every, couple of days I'd come out and there he'd be and it was Sam Shepard you know and we would just stand there and talk about whatever he'd smoke a cigarette and nobody ever asked what we were doing he didn't ask me what I was doing I didn't ask what was going on over here we never talked about we never talked about film we would talk about the way this place looked and how wow this old studio imagine all the different people 
whose lives have crisscrossed this place. You'd have these kind of philosophical conversations about place and time and where we were. And, you know, sometimes they'd bring in a truckload of beautiful old cars to, you know, for the, the Patsy Klein era, you know, it was kind of amazing, kind of amazing. I mean, just little things like that profound, you know, profound, especially for a young actor who's just like, who's just kind of figuring it all out. Well, thank you so much. This was great. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. So we are back and we are talking about real genius. And one thing that came up a few times during those interviews were just the weird glut of science movies that all happened to hit at the same time. So you had Weird Science, August 2nd, 1985. You had Real Genius that came out Wednesday after August 7th, 1985. And you had My Science Project that came two days after that on August 9th, 1985. What the fuck is going on? Why all this science all at once? But there it was. One of the reasons why they think that Real Genius didn't do as well as it did that first time around was that there were so many science movies. And I guess maybe, I mean, maybe if you have to pick one, and plus this is all within a one week span that these three movies are coming out all in August, ladies and gentlemen, which we know used to be the dog days of summer. And that was when you didn't go see movies. So putting something out in August was as bad as putting it out in February. Nobody sees movies at this time. Dump month. It's the January of the summer. At least with January, you might get some Oscar movies, maybe. Maybe. Every 10 years, you get a Passion of the Christ kind of surprise. That and Black Panther were, uh, what, January and February? Maybe this was left behind because you had Dennis Hopper in My Science Project. That had to have been a draw for a certain group of people. And then we had Brat Pack people, and well, it was weird science, you said, right? And then this one is like, oh, I don't know who that is. And you got a lot more sex in Weird Science. I mean, that was the appeal for me when I saw it on HBO is Kelly LeBrock. It wasn't the two nerds that you have. I mean, yeah, I like Anthony Michael Hall, but the other guy, and I'm sorry that I can't remember the other guy's name, but the other guy? He was perfectly fine. He was perfectly fine. Ian Michael Smith, Mitchell, Ian Mitchell Island Smith. Island Michael Smith. Island. Oh, okay. Sorry. Oh, there's a type of one of those weird names that no one can ever pronounce because it's, it's not a real name. That's why it was spelled wrong where I was looking. <laughs> so I saw weird science probably 20 times. I mean, God bless Bill Paxton. He and then the scene with the bikers. Those are the the scenes that did it for me. Maybe the scenes with the black guys, which is now very problematic, especially Anthony Michael Hall. Oof. I called every night for like a month. I mean, I'm talking devotion, man. Every damn night? Every night, Mitch. I ain't playing with you. On the telephone? It boy talking about on the telephone, man. Goddamn, yeah. we know there's a telephone, boy. What the hell thing I'm doing? <laughs> but he hung, hung up on, on her. Oh, you didn't hang up on her. The chick with those big, big titties? Man, I hung up on the baby. And then, of course, Kelly the Brock. But it took me 
25 years before I finally saw my science project. I enjoyed it, but it was just like, wow, why did I wait so long to see this thing? Are you telling me you didn't walk to the movie theater because you were too young to drive and go see that at least once in the theater and pay for it? Man, I had I had nothing to do growing up, apparently. I was seeing movies in theaters quite a bit, but a lot of times they were with my folks. So seeing, well, my folks, my mom, my dad wasn't a big movie guy. So I guess none of these really appealed to her. She was kind of the first line of defense. Do you want to know the dumb reason I went to see my science project? Please. I saw the trailer and I saw the device and I'm like, yeah, that looks pretty neat. That was it. That's all it took. That looks pretty neat. And tickets were like $3.50 back then. So it's got a hell of a cast. It should have been great. Instead, it was just, it was just all right. It was all right. I have never heard of this movie until right now. <laughs> really? Never heard of it. Wow. This was a real movie. Just to let you know, this was directed by the guy who wrote uh, The Last Starfighter. Oh, Nick Castle? Uh, no. No, he directed it. Right. John uh, Bettel was the gentleman's name. B-E-T-U-E-L. Written and directed by him. This was his follow-up to The Last Starfighter. And it stars the guy who wasn't Ernie Cunningham from Christine, uh, John Stockwell. And, uh, yeah, you got Fisher Stevens in there, Richard Mazur and Wedgworth, uh, Dennis Hopper playing Bob Roberts. No, not that Bob Roberts. Yeah, it's like a high school, remind me, Chris, it's like a high school being taken over by the past or something? Yeah, the device opens up portals, but it's um like wormholes, and um, 60s Dennis Hopper is loving it. There, I do remember some kind of futuristic-looking double-bladed axe, but also cavemen, so I think it was an across-time kind of kind of thing. Because there might have been like a weird science barbarians on motorcycles, but they might have been more like shiny Megaforce style motorcycles. I could just be talking about a dream I had. I don't know. The motorcycles sound right going down the hall, but I could be thinking of class of 1999. Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of things <laughs> that yeah. are similar. But of course, Ryan, you were very familiar with weird science. Oh, yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. The, one of the most relentlessly horny movies ever made. Probably, for me, best known for just the Oingo Boingo song. Great song, too. But yeah, having um, uh, Vernon Wells and especially Michael Berryman... And that um, he doesn't want uh, he doesn't want anybody to find out about this because he's a teacher. I thought that was very nice. But yeah, what a weird thing that these three science movies all come out the same week's time. So strange, and it's not like we're it's not like somebody at the studio is like we're going to make a science movie and some other, you know, corporate espionage thing is like, no, no, we're going to make a science movie. <laughs> the first one to come up with the hit science movie wins. This is our Armageddon. Oh yeah. Well, you think that's good. This is our deep impact. Oh, you got volcano. Well, here's Dante's peak, baby. I have one thing that I actually uh, learned again from the, the audio commentary, which I uh, was quite a fan of. Uh, Ron Cobb, who designed the Back to the Future DeLorean, came up with the idea of blowing up Hathaway's house with popcorn. 
they had it they couldn't find a way to end the movie so they they had a contest among the cast and crew and among i guess people that uh, martha coolidge knew and he won I wonder what those ideas were beforehand. I'm trying to remember what I read in the script. I think one was the Great Dane eats him. No, the I'm Great kidding. Dane I'm that pooped on his yeah, lawn Yeah, the Great earlier? Dane that he's always chasing away. They cooked him with the laser and the dog ate him. Wow. That would that no, would have been no, an I, ending, Chris. I, again, I know, just, I know. Yeah. yeah, it went real dark. It was the 80s. There was, you know, little nose candy being passed around. In here, not when the script was made. I'm not. Oh, just right now. Yeah. Yeah. I wondered why you were sniffing earlier. Now you've got me curious, Ryan. I have to go back. I'm looking at the the script now, and I have to see what uh, the window is obliterated. Okay. Yeah. No, it's uh, aluminum foil covered pool. The foil is heated instantly. Okay. Yeah. It is popcorn in this version of the script. All right. Phew. I was like, don't tell me that it wasn't popcorn in the original in the in this one. So there was just no ending. It was just uh we'll figure it, was it out. Cherry jello. One thing that's not in this script is Jerry coming back to his house, which I enjoy that little you know, it's not as uh it's not the, the principal getting onto the bus kind of thing, but it's kinda similar of him coming home and just seeing all the the popcorn in his house destroyed. It's the Marvel Stinger. Yeah. (laughs) He might as well just be eating shawarma. Professor Hathaway, I'm putting together a team. So, Ryan, I didn't know that there was a version of this with commentary. I even looked to see if there was one, and and DVD Beaver led me astray. They didn't have that listed. Columbia TriStar put out a Blu-ray, like, I want to say four years ago, and it's on there. Outstanding. It's like, it's one of those uh, fabricate on demand Blu-rays. But it's on Amazon. Well, a lot of those don't have any extras, so that's amazing that it did. Yeah, and I think it was a newly recorded commentary, too. So, Are there any other extras on there? No, just that. There's not even menus. I do like how, at once upon a time, menus, uh, interactive menus, were a selling point for DVDs. Be on the back. Theatrical trailer. Theatrical trailer. Oh, and don't forget, cast bios. Yeah, that's right. My favorite, I flipped over some like mid 90s, just like terrible CG monster type movie. I forget what it was. And it said under bonus features, it said chapters. Thanks, movie. That's on the uh, the, the Blu-ray for The Room. <laughs> One of them is chapters. <laughs> well, don't do me any favors here, DVD. Wow. Well, I want to thank my co-hosts on this episode, Chris and Ryan. So, Chris, what is the latest with you, sir? Uh, we're still doing Outside the Cinema, the cult movie podcast. Uh, You're still doing that, huh? Yeah, I mean, he won't stop. So I guess if he gets it, we're doing another one. Okay, fine. We're doing another one. And it's been, it's. I'm going to brag a little bit. It's been 14 years. Jesus. I said 13 earlier. I And I didn't mean to underestimate you. Yeah. You know, I, it's, yeah. It's, it's a lot. And, uh, <laughs> no, I enjoy it. I enjoy it most of the time. You got to be close to like a thousand episodes now. I think we're in 700 range. Honestly, I don't, I, I, I zoom in and, and we record cause we're not going near anybody until this whole thing is over. And, uh, and, and he just says, all right, welcome to the show. And then he does all the typing with the numbers. So I don't, I don't know. I don't check on it. 
you're right. 736 is um, the episode that you just dropped as we are recording this. Okay. All right. Did that one on Monday. So, yep. Yep. I I forget what the movies are. Uh, Black Gun and... Oh, yeah. Hurricane Smith, does that yep. sound right? Yep. Okay. Yeah, not they they weren't bad. They weren't bad. Yeah. So if I could leave you with one piece of advice, don't ever forget to check your references. Sorry, sorry. I saw that and I'm like, I gotta I gotta do that because nobody's nobody references that line anymore. And Ryan, what is happening with you, sir? I work on two podcasts. I make a subjective pop culture history show called The Coolness Chronicles. Uh, We just wrapped up 100 episodes on The Greatest Thing Ever, Mystery Science Theater 3000. And now we're deep into the second season. That It's all about the landmark parody film Airplane, the movies and filmmakers that inspired it, and the movies and filmmakers that it in turn inspired, from Mel Brooks to the Marx Brothers, and even the Farrelly Brothers are coming up. Uh, Mike was actually on two recent episodes, talking about Enter the Dragon and Naked Gun 33 and a Third. The only return guest so far, so take that as you will. Uh, And I also co-host another podcast called Reels of Justice, which is a fake movie court where we have a prosecutor, a defense counsel, a judge, and a jury, and we try to determine if a film is guilty or innocent of being a bad movie. And we're quickly approaching the 100-episode milestone. So nowhere near, uh, Chris, but uh, we're, we're nipping at your heels eventually your ideas are better i'm out of order this whole system's out of order that's never happened yet so far i I can't believe we've almost made it to 100 episodes and no one has done you're out of order but you can find uh coolness chronicles and reels of justice uh wherever you find podcasts and i'm on uh twitter at coolness pod ryan and instagram at the coolness chronicles Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world with big Jewish space lasers. (laughs) 